Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here, as always, to talk about stuff. This week on the show, lots of fun things to talk about, but our main topic will be Shin Godzilla, yes. the new Godzilla film, which is in theaters for like another day or two, if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I wrote a review on the site. We both tweeted about it a little bit. We saw it the same night. Tuesday, October 11th is when we saw it, because that was yep. the opening night, sort of, for this limited run Funimation is doing. Um, so you guys probably have heard our thoughts already in general terms, but as we always do, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion of the movie, but Sean, quick, let's give our spoiler-free thoughts on the 29th and latest Godzilla film. Yeah. You are, now you are, are whole again, you have seen all Godzilla movies. Yes, my, my identity has been reasserted, I am the man I am once more, you know. Yes. So, and that's great, and yeah, the movie is amazing, it's, it's one of the best Godzilla movies like it's in the top 5 for me for sure wow like it's it's really really great and it's something that i think people if you have any interest in Godzilla if you have any interest in like the sort of the political climate in modern Japan and that kind of stuff like this is a movie you just really need to see and like i'm i am so eager for this to come out on blu-ray so i can get it cuz i want to see this movie again so bad yes absolutely and if this movie was like it is like in theaters that were more easy to just sort of like get to in an afternoon. I would probably have seen this movie multiple times in the theater, you know. <laughs> yes, which I have not done that in a long time. I mean, yeah. First off, again, this is coming out on Monday, and I guess it'll be playing through Tuesday. So, if last minute you're listening to this and you hadn't heard, this is so worth seeing on the big screen. Yeah, like yeah. more so than any movie I think I've seen this year. This is a big screen experience. You have to see it to believe it. It is a fantastic movie. I had my review up on the site. It's a spoiler-free take. And it was really one of those things where I wrote a bunch of notes the night we saw it. And then I went to bed. And then I got up in the morning and I was like, fuck. I have to write about this. I just, yeah. I have to. Because I can't just drive over to your house in the middle of the day and make you podcast with me. Yeah. So I'm like, we're, I'm, I have to write about it. I have to do something. Because I had so many thoughts on this movie. And it is so spectacular and interesting. You know, my only warning to people would be if you are not... All that knowledgeable of like Japanese politics and history, I think a lot of it would fall kind of on deaf ears. It is yeah. very Japanese. This is not yes. an a cultural movie or anything, which plenty of Godzilla movies are. Plenty of Godzilla movies, you know, you don't necessarily have to know a lot about Japanese culture to yeah, get. Yeah, yeah, you don't need to know the intricacies of like the the bureaucracy of, Japan, of the Japanese government to understand why it's awesome when Godzilla rips off Mega Godzilla's head. You right, know? exactly. Um, this movie's a little more in depth on that, and I would also just warn you that. Uh, get your get your subtitle eyes ready because this movie has such a barrage of dialogue. It's yeah. kind of hilarious to try to follow it all. And I would love if on the DVD Funimation did something like tried to dub five minutes of this movie because I would love to see what the fuck that would even look like. It's like they have to get every single voice actor they know. They just yes. like call in someone who hasn't been in in like ten years. Like we gotta pull you in, man. We need everybody because. Yes. There's like a hundred speaking roles of this movie. I know. Like, this movie is essentially undubbable, right? Yes. No, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's because obviously most Godzilla movies are dubbed, and, and sometimes that's a totally legitimate way to watch the movie. They would be impossible with this one for yeah. reasons that would become apparent in about 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. Awesome movie. Awesome that it was in theaters. Yeah. In yeah. such good quality and so fast. I mean, this movie only opened at the end of July, so that turnaround is awesome. Yeah. And good on Funimation. I'm glad. I hope this continues because 
like Funimation continues to get the Godzilla movies if they make more because they can quickly get these out. They have a theatrical network. They'll have good home video versions. And so it's just nice that I think, you know, 12 years after the last Godzilla movie, the market for foreign niche films here is a lot more open. And that's nice. Yeah, that, the, that even if it's just in this sort of like limited release form, these movies can come out over here and yeah. you can go see them in the theater. Like people talk about all the time, like, you know, there are certain things about the theatrical model right now that is more limited. And that's true in some sense. But in the year 2004, there was no way Godzilla Final Wars was going to play in theaters. Yeah. You know, there's just no way that was ever going to happen. In part just because you'd have to make prints for it. And there wasn't this network of more niche theaters out there and stuff like that. And now there is, and that is a nice thing, and it's worth supporting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. So we will talk about that movie more in depth. It is so good. Um, But we're going to talk about some other things today. Yeah. Uh, We got some... I played Gears of War 4. We will talk about that. Awesome. It's a Gears of War game. That's what I thought. That's pretty much I could stop my review there. Yeah. But I have more thoughts. Okay. Anyway, but we will talk about Gears of War 4. Talk about some other things. I'm going to start with some stuff. Okay. Top of the show stuff. Stuff, stuff. I guess I'll follow up with something I talked about last week, which is a Paper Mario Color Splash. Right. Continues to be a great game. Awesome. That game is so good. It makes me sad that some people don't like it. Because those people don't have joy in their hearts. And I wish you had joy in your heart. Okay. Because this is a joyous game. It's a great game, and I will. I will. Let me address like the one most controversial thing about the game I've heard. Yeah, because I've is, read a couple of reviews now, and there seems like there's a couple of things that people have an issue with. Yes, with this game. and I think it's it's about like how much of an issue you're going to have with it, and yeah. whether or not it kind of breaks the game for you. And it's the battle system in the game. It does mm-hmm. have an RPG esque battle system where the enemies are on the map. It's very classic Paper Mario in some ways, in that the enemies are on the map. You can jump on them to get an advantage, all of that stuff. But the battle system itself uses these battle cards, and so your moves are determined by the cards. And and, uh, anyway, so you have the cards, and you can, you know, you go through them. So if you use an attack, you're using a card, and you have to get another card to use the attack, all that stuff. Um, I think it's actually a really good battle system, and I'll just say that up front. I think it's uh, very fun. I think it gets more challenging as the game goes along. There's a decent amount of strategy to it. It is not like a super in-depth RPG battle system. Not that Paper Mario was ever that. And I do think I've seen some reviews. Not necessarily reviews, but I've seen some opinions from like people on Reddit and things like that. Right. Who I think see the old Paper Mario games through something of a rose-tinted glasses. Not in that they aren't great games. They are. Yeah. But pretending they're like super hardcore RPGs is missing what was good about those games to me. Yeah. And so I, I don't think this is any more or less hardcore on that level of what the battle system is. And I do have, on a basic level, fun with this battle system. I like the card thing. I think it uses the gamepad in a good way where... This is honestly a Wii U game where this is kind of what I always thought the Wii U gamepad should be used for. Where it's very much like the DS or the 3DS. Where the second screen isn't for like a huge gimmick, but it's for... Let's do something on that screen to like almost unclutter the top screen and make it just easier to play across... And I think that's what the card battle system partially does. And I think it involves some good strategy with bringing in the paint stuff from outside. That they, There's a lot of the, the paint system and color splash and that sort of thing. So that's all. I enjoy the battle system. And I think the most important thing for me to say, I guess, on a gameplay level is it's fun. And in a game, that's kind of like number one for me. Like, right, is yeah. the mechanic fun to do? I think it is. The bigger issue I think people have, and I do think it's a legitimate issue, is on some level is it's not traditional RPG in that you get experience and you level up and you can customize your character. You do not get traditional rewards for these battles. It's not you start at level 1 and you get to level 2, 3, 4, 5, right, all right. that stuff. Um, and I think 
I do get on some level someone could look at this and say, well, that feels like a waste of my time then because I'm not getting anything for these battles and that stuff. And I kind of get that. On the other hand, I wouldn't say you get nothing. You do get coins for the battles. You use those coins to buy cards. You get cards and stuff. And on some level, that's a self-repeating thing because you need yeah. the coins to get cards to use yeah, the cards yeah, to play the you, game. Yeah, you, you need the cards to do the battles, and you get the coins to get the cards to do the battles, to get the right. coins to get the cards to do the battles, to get yes. the coins to get the cards to get the battles. Right. So there's all of that. Um, and you also do the, the enemies drop um, pieces of like they, they drop these little paper paint hammers and those will upgrade your own paint hammer and so if you get enough of those you get to hold more paint in your hammer which is important because as the game goes along battles get harder you need more paint for things all of that and if you weren't doing the battles and getting those things to upgrade your hammer you'd be fucked in a couple of places so that there is an upgrade system going on that's right. a pretty limited one um, so yeah, I don't know if I can even defend it beyond it doesn't bother me and I have fun with it. And I do think, yeah, I mean, you do not get stronger for doing the battles, I guess you could say. You could theoretically just skip all the battles and just do the bosses that they have you do. Right. I think in those cases you might not understand the system enough to beat some of the bosses because they can be a little challenging. Um, but it doesn't bother me and I don't think there's like an excessive amount. This is not like Final Fantasy IV where like you take a step every two steps and you're having to do a battle. Right, yeah. They're on the map. You can avoid them. You can interact. There's not a ton. It does not feel too grindy to me. And I have fun with it. Um, would the game possibly be deeper and richer if they had more of a traditional experience system grafted on there with the battle system? Probably. That's probably an improvement that could be made. I won't necessarily deny that. Does it ruin the game for me? No, especially because that's so not the main thing about that game to me. Right. Like, again, I talked about this a little bit last week, just how good the writing in this game is. And again, it has not faltered. The writing in this game is so fucking fantastic, top to bottom. It is so creative. It is so funny. And it, it's kind of, this is such a weird comparison. But I, you know, playing this the same week I was also playing Gears of War 4 made me think a little bit about how humor is used in video games. Right, yeah. Because Gears of War 4 makes a very conscious effort to try to be funnier than other Gears of War games. Because, and I don't, it's not that I don't find humor in some of the other Gears of War games, but it's very yeah. tongue-in-cheek and it's often not intentional. Yeah, they're, they're like, there's, there's a seriousness to how the other Gears of War games take themselves that allows the sort of cheesy B-movie quality of it to really work, I think. And I actually think that's the smart thing to do, and I think it's actually a huge miscalculation what Gears of War 4 tries to do in being really bantery, where like right. JD and Dell, who are two of the new characters, are always kind of going back and forth with these sarcastic quips, and the writing is just awful. Like, I just, it's so bad. And it's it, it speaks to me how the other Gears games actually handled that kind of well, is that when old Marcus Phoenix is in the game, and he's talking, he's really funny. And I think they actually understand what makes Marcus Phoenix funny is his own sense of self-seriousness. Yeah. And those parts of the games are very funny organically, and when they're trying to be funny, it's not. And so it's just, it's a general thing in comedy writing, but I also think when it's an interactive game, it's another level harder. Yeah, because, like, games, I think, have a really hard issue with timing and humor obviously yes. because like the way the systems interact and the way that the player's perspective is in the scene the the designers can't always anticipate that so it's hard to create humor like sort of in a very design sense around that kind of stuff and games have always had that problem exactly and so it's just it's something i really want to commend paper mario color splash for it's really well written and consistently every time i have picked that game up I laugh a lot at it. There's just a lot of funny things. And it's not even always the writing. It's just the animations and some of the little things they have sprinkled through the world. And the way they'll have, you know, you'll be walking along and maybe there's a shy guy over there, you know, sitting 
at a cafe table drinking a coffee and then he notices Mario and like runs scurries away or something like that. Right. Like it's just a very naturally funny game. And so like and playing it opposite a game that is tr- seeming like it's almost putting more effort into being funny even though it's obviously not because the main point of Gears of War 4 is not to be funny. Right. Made me realize how organically funny Paper Mario Color Splash is and how just solid the writing in that game is. But also, again, as I said last week, it's got this interesting structure where you have basically levels on a overall world map. And, you know, basically when you beat one level, it'll, or you get a paint star, basically is how it works in a level, that will unlock another level and create the path towards it. They're not levels in the traditional Mario sense that you have to go from like A to B and find a flag. Right. It's, there's these big open, it's, like I said, kind of six, Mario 64, Mario Sunshine-esque, where it's a big open world level and you have to go through and kind of complete tasks and this is much more in an RPG vein where you're moving around talking to people solving puzzles that kind of stuff but every one of those levels almost every one of them is really really good and some of them are fantastic like I went through one last night that took me a while to play because it's pretty big and complex where you're in this hotel that's haunted and they make a great joke at the beginning where the toad had tried to call Luigi but couldn't find him because right. of course Luigi has has paranormal experience. He's a Ghostbuster. He know, he's an honorary Ghostbuster. Indeed, um, that should be the next Ghostbusters movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah they Luigi bring, crosses over. Yes, they can have John Leguizamo play Luigi. In sure, the new great. Yeah. yeah, like it, it it is literally a part of that continuity, and it's, yes. it's to set up the the sequel that they they because the, the the original Super Mario Brothers movie ends with the fucking cliffhanger. I know, and I've been waiting my entire life to find <laughs> out what happens in the sequel. Right. Maybe now we get that opportunity. Exactly. Uh, anyway. What was I talking about? Okay, so there's the, the hotel and it's haunted and you basically have to find these five ghost toads. I think there might be six. And get them back to this one room. And just as you're going around this hotel and there's all these clues that the, the toads who are alive and like they're not ghosts will give you. And you kind of have to try to figure things out and kind of piece it together. And you're moving around this hotel and it's got three floors and each floor has a certain number of hotel rooms. It's just really clever. And just for the moment, the game just for this one level becomes... Completely kind of takes out that combat element, and it's just an exploration puzzle-esque kind of thing with these ghost toads, and it has this really interesting tone. And I love that it can just kind of do that, and it's on that very, you know, that level I love of Mario stuff where you can just have a lot of invention, and you have these individual levels that are just concentrated bursts of creativity, and this game really represents that well. So I am enjoying the heck out of it. Uh, it's a big game, I'm realizing. Right. Like, the, you have to collect six big paint stars to restore the fountain, and that's kind of the overall goal. Uh, you can almost think of it as, you know, the different keys you have to get to beat Mario 64 or something. And or like in Paper Mario, when you have to go find seven stars. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, that is literally the thing you do in the original Paper Mario, is there's like seven stars or whatever, and you have right. to go find them okay. all. Right, okay. It's been a while since... give you like superpowers or something when you get them. Right, it's been a while since I've played that. So same kind of thing. Yeah. And I've collected two of them, so I guess I'm only a third of the way through the game. Right, yeah. And I don't know, maybe some... The second star took less time to find than the first, so we'll see. Um, I've, I've put a significant amount of time into it, and there's a lot more to come, but I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Cool. And, yeah, I, I, I think if you like this kind of thing, I, and you have a Wii U, I would absolutely give it a try. I also have to stress again, it is such a gorgeous game. The graphics in this game, oh my god. I don't know how quite they do it with this level of texture. And there's this great museum feature where when you find things, you can put them in the museum, and that will unlock things in the museum for you. Um, such as concept art and it's just so cool to look at the concept art it's like of the Nintendo artists and it's all like uh, colored pencil sketches of like the paper dioramas that are in the game yeah that's such a cool bonus feature I like that I wish more games had like stuff like you could unlock maybe with an achievement you'd get a piece of concept art or something sure yeah it's a cool thing to have yeah but anyway so I'm enjoying the heck out of that game cool Um, something else I enjoyed the heck out of this week 
is Supergirl. Oh, right, yeah, that's back on. Season 2 premiered, and now it's on the CW rather than CBS. Feels way more at home on the CW because it's on the same network as The Flash and Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow. And it's like, okay, she's with her friends. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it was weird last year. There was a Flash crossover, but that was technically on two different networks. You know? So it's it's nice. Um, you, You all know I love Supergirl. I think it's such a great show. I loved the first season. I think... Everything about it is, almost everything about it is so good, and it's such the kind of superhero show I want in that it embraces being episodic while still having, you know, character arcs and things that carry through, but it can do sort of the day-to-day superhero stuff that we don't get in superhero movies, and for some God-only-knows reason, we don't get in a lot of the superhero shows either. Right. (laughs) And luckily, I do think the DCCW shows are pretty good at giving that. The Flash has gotten... The, the back half of Flash Season 2 was not good, and it got too uh, too serialized, I think, was part of it. Um, and too serialized in a really dark direction. I'll talk about that a little bit, because I've seen the beginning of Flash Season 3 also. But anyway, really love Supergirl. And the big thing with Season 2 and the premiere is that they introduced Superman. Yeah, I've, I've seen some clips and stuff, because I was curious what, who, what their Superman was like. It's a big deal, you know, because yeah. only a small number of people have played Superman, and now we have a new Superman, as we also have one in theaters, you know, with Henry yeah. Cavill and stuff. And uh, anyway, the new Superman is played by Tyler Hoechlin, um, a guy I did not really know before this. I think he's been on some other TV shows. I think he was on the MTV Teen Wolf show. Right. Which they is a made TV that. show. Yeah. Right. That, and, and because I was looking up this guy, because I'm like, oh, he's the new Superman, that show ran for like six years. <laughs> it might still be on. Like, there was a Teen Wolf show for years. <laughs> It's so weird. I've I, I remember when they first put that show on the air, and I kind of never heard about it again. So I just assumed it only got one season. No, huh? It was on forever. It's one of those, huh? <laughs> yep. Anyway, but Tyler Hoechlin, you can't hold that against him. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, you got work. Got to work. And uh, maybe it was who knows? I have not seen a second of Teen Wolf. It could be great. Sure. Probably not. But I would not take that bet. But it is. Yeah. Technically possible. It's yeah. technically possible. Anyway, so he's the new, he's Superman on this show. And I will say, you know, up front, I never needed Superman on Supergirl. But the way they had it in season one where they know each other, they're cousins, they're friends, all of that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, Clark would be texting with Kara. And you would have, you know, Kara's had a bad day and she gets a text from Clark being like... You know, you're cool. You go, girl. Not exactly like that. But like something right. that's like, you know, her cousin trying to give her some feedback. And you're like, oh, that's a really sweet moment. And you're like, why don't we see him? <laughs> you know, it's like... And then there was this whole arc at the end of the season where um, Superman was going to help her out with this crisis. And then he got, like, brainwashed or something and was knocked out. And he's in the DEO, which is this organization Supergirl works with. And you just see him off screen. He's in the hospital room. And so it, by the end of the season, it definitely got awkward where it's like, he is a character, we just can't see him. Yeah, it's like, it seems like you either just need to have him be an actual character that you can, like, cut to every once in a while. Yes. Or, or it's just like you don't ever really even address him because it's like exactly. Superman has too much of a presence in anything he's in that you can't just sort of allude to him over and over again without showing him. Exactly. And of course, the, 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 I don't think that the people making Supergirl had chosen and never to show Superman. They yeah. probably, someone at Warner Brothers said, you can't have him. Yeah. And clearly, over the break, something changed, and so they have a Superman here. He's not like a main character. He'll be in guest roles and stuff. Um, but he is on the show, and he's really good. Like, Tyler Hoechlin is a really good Superman. Like, not just a passable, like, this is fine for a guest role on Supergirl. I would like to see him be Superman more. 
Like his yeah. Clark Kent is really good. He has a he's he's Christopher Reeves esque without doing kind of what Brandon Routh was asked to do in Superman Returns and just be Christopher Reeves. Uh, he gets to be his own thing, but he does have that element where Clark is a little bumbling but self assured, but he just kind of puts on that slight act of being a little out of his element. But what I like about what Tyler Hoechlin does with it is it's not an act. Like he is kind of I think when he's not Superman, he's He's comfortable in himself, but he's just slightly awkward in social situations, and I like that. It seems like that's something I've always liked in Clark Kent, of him being like, as a person, he's just kind of a normal guy, and yeah. sometimes he has trouble talking to people, whatever, so that's nice. Um, he is in this continuity, even though on Krypton, Kara was 10 years older than him, she was stuck in the Phantom Zone and didn't get to Earth until 12 years later, so time travel stuff aside... Comic books. Comic books. On Earth, Superman is 12 years older than Supergirl. Although they look the same age. That's the only weird thing, and they do address it, where they say, Krypton's age slowly. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Because Tyler Hoechlin and Melissa Benoist, I think, are like the exact same age. So that's, for, for a second, I was like, isn't he supposed to be? And then they said, like, aren't you supposed to be? And he's like, we age slow. I'm like, okay, well, at least you guys thought of it. Yeah. So anyway, um, but what was I saying? Something about... Superman? Something Probably. about Superman. Anyway, he's been Superman for a while, is the point. And you do, he right. also, he, he wears that very well. You know, he's in a relationship with Lois Lane, they say, all that stuff. So he's like, you could almost say, like, he's on the seventh season of his show while Supergirl is on the second season of hers. Or yeah, something. unless his show is Smallville. In this case, which yes. case, he's on season, like, 38 of Smallville no. or something like that. Luckily, they didn't try to tie those continuities together. Yeah. That would have been crazy. Anyway, um, but I like that. I think he and Melissa Benoist, who continues to be just a phenomenal Supergirl and a phenomenal Kara, I think she is every bit as good of casting for this as... Robert Downey Jr. is as Tony Stark or Christopher Reeves was as the, the, the first, not the first, but the Superman we all know. Yeah. Um, and she's so great. And she and Tyler Hoechlin have really good chemistry as it's a very sibling-esque kind of thing. And it is this weird thing where he's been a superhero for longer on Earth, but she was on Krypton longer. She was like 10 when it just was destroyed. So she remembers things. She knew Clark as a baby and all that stuff. And so there's a really fun chemistry they have to play there. And it's just... They strike a really good balance where, as you say, Superman has his own orbit. It's tough to put Superman in something and not have it become about him. Yeah. But he's in this and he is the sidekick in this episode. It doesn't become like Superman's the big star and now Supergirl has to go help him out, which most Supergirl crossovers in like the history of media probably are that kind of thing. Yeah. Because you know? yeah. it's kind of sexist. Uh -huh. um, they don't do that here and they strike a really good balance where... Superman's in town, they kind of had a shared crisis, and then he decides to stick around because he's having fun helping out his cousin, and they solve a, they solve a crime and, and a mystery together, and it's a lot of fun, and you have scenes where she's going and shadowing him as reporter Clark Kent, and you have scenes where they're both Superman and Supergirl, and they, just, they did a really good job with it, and the premiere as a whole was really, really good in terms of, I think, setting up a new season and seeing where the characters are. There's one awkward thing with a romance that they decided... Well, they had a lot of investment in season one, and then on the off-season they decided, we don't want to do this anymore, right. and they drop-kicked that so hard that it's almost comical. But other than that, it's a really good premiere. The show is so good. If you've never seen it before, I'd recommend you catch up, because it's easy, it's on Netflix. But if you can't, just like start with season two. It's good. She, she's Supergirl, he's Superman, you'll get it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, the, the clip I watched was, I think it was like a solid like, five-minute clip or something that they put out of um, him and Supergirl like stopping a falling plane... Mm -hmm. like rescuing it which is 
if you're going to put out like a piece of footage for your new Superman, that is what I want to see. And that's his first scene. Yeah, so it's, so it's him and Supergirl rescuing this this crashing plane. And I thought, yeah, that it looked really good, and he looked awesome as Superman. Like yep. he, like you say, he had like a sort of like not exactly like Christopher Reeve, but he had that kind of earnestness. To yes, that's the him right word. That was like that's what I want to see in Superman. I want my Superman to be like. You know, big blue Boy Scout, like super, like this really pure kind of guy. That's he what is, I want. He is, and and he's and he's compares so well to Kara and Supergirl, who has those same kind of qualities, and they're really good together. And yeah, it's impossible not to compare it to Henry Cavill and the shitty Zack Snyder movies because this Superman smiles yeah. and he laughs and he cracks jokes and he takes joy in being around others and he enjoys being a hero and he encourages his cousin, "You should enjoy being a hero." Yeah. And they both, it's like. Again, I said this a lot last season. Supergirl almost goes out of its way to like subtweet Man of Steel at every step of the way. Yeah. And like not that it becomes distracting like where they stop the story to do it, but they almost like I feel like they build the stories to like show the value in this kind of superhero mm-hmm. that the DC movies are completely uninterested in showing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so I, I definitely want to catch up with Supergirl at some point. I'll just have to find time. Yeah, because obviously I'm doing stuff. But you are well, and luckily it's on Netflix now. Yeah, yeah. So the the first season you can find there. So I am so excited. Um, the Flash season three also came back. There's two episodes of that now, and it's good. Um, they did a thing where at the end of season two, the Flash decides to go back in time and change something, and so the start of season three is is called Flashpoint, and it does some kind of okay. Flashpoint esque yeah. stuff. And I like it. I've definitely seen some complaints about it, and I don't necessarily disagree with them because there is. Some tonal stuff that's a little wonky and definitely at some point someone's going to have to sit Barry Allen down and say, dude, you're a really nice guy, but you fucked up way too much shit with your fucking running and your time travel. And they do. And I frankly, I do think they address that in the second episode. And that's actually a pretty good episode of The Flash. Um, But I'm interested to see where they go from here with it. Um, The only thing that like rubbed me a little bit the wrong way is... And again, I don't want to get into spoilers, but just if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Good God, the last scene of the Flash Season 3 premiere is dark to a degree that I'm not sure the people writing it understood. Okay. Because the Flash has to go back in time again and unfix what he fixed. It's really dark. Okay. (laughs) Like, to a degree that that show probably shouldn't go to. Because really, I think Barry Allen would have, like, severe PTSD for the rest of his life. Okay. And he's a nice guy. He's fun, you know? It's Barry Allen. You know? He's a good dude. So, I'm liking that. I'm still... One day, I want to catch up on Arrow so I can watch all three of those shows. But Arrow has, like, five seasons. And they're all 23 episodes. And I'm sure it's good. But that's a lot to watch. Yeah. yeah. Luckily, I was on the ground floor with, like, Flash and Supergirl. And I can keep up with those for however long they run. Which is probably going to be forever because they're hits. But, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. um, Yeah. As I've always said, if you don't like what DC is doing in their movies... It's free. It's on TV, and it's really good. It yeah. is so much better. Yeah, if you want to see like a live action Superman, there is one, and it is actually Superman now. And yes. That's good. That's yep. I like that. I like having Superman be out there and live action Supergirl because you know they're never going to do that in a movie <laughs> again. I mean, no they, they did it once, and it was really bad. Yeah, but it's great on TV. Love it. It's it's nice to have these shows back. Cool. Also, all right. So that's my stuff. What stuff do you have, Sean? Um, I have been playing a lot of Persona 5. Like, I, yeah. Like, that, that game is really good, and I'm definitely, I'm in the part with it where I was taking a walk yesterday, and, like, I just had this realization of, 
like I've like was I'm deep into it into the point where I'm getting that weird sense that you got with like Persona 3 and Persona 4 of like I'm living two lives right now because I'm investing so much time into this other video game that has that just takes place in sort of real time in its own universe you know and it's like I have just gone through summer break and I'm back in school and I have to deal with all this other bullshit and like a lot of my social parameters are getting at like the top level and all my social links are going well and it's just like it's like I've, I'm living this other life, but it's, it's even almost harder now because there's no one I can talk to about this game because it's not out here yet. But yeah, no, I've been, I've been playing a lot of Persona 5. I can turn on my PS4 at any time of the day or night and I feel like I see you on yes. my friend's tab playing Persona yes. 5. It's, it is every free moment I have I, because it's like I just need to. Like I oh yeah, no, I get it. Although there is, I, ha- I did last night. I did rip myself away from it for a little bit, mostly just for the sake of having something to talk about on this podcast. That's not something that's something that I can't really talk about. And they did they released kind of at the same time, which is a little weird. Two different betas. There was the Call of Duty Infinite Warfare beta, which you can get access to if you uh, pre-ordered it, which I did. I've played that too. Yeah, and then but then also there was a beta for Dragon Ball Universe Two. That is also on PSN. That is an open beta for everyone. I've only played a little bit of. Both of those, because like I was decided, like I will give myself about ninety minutes to play something that is not Persona Five on this evening, and I have these two betas. So I played kind of like the first couple of missions of Dragon Ball's Universe Two in the beta. I'm not sure how long it is. I tried to play some more this morning, but the servers are really rough, and it's a beta, so that's fine. But and then I played like a couple of matches of the Infinite for, Warfare beta. For some reason, the Xenoverse One beta was the same way, and then when the game came out, it was pretty much fine. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. I mean, that's that's what a beta should be. Yeah, yeah. I have no qualms with network issues on betas. Like, they, this is the reason they exist. Like, it's almost reassuring when their networks are completely fucked in the beta, because then it's like, okay, whatever was going to go wrong has already gone wrong, yeah. and they know what's going to go wrong, so hopefully now they have, they have time to fix it before the game comes out. But I'll, let's, I'll talk about Xenoverse 2 briefly, and then we can both talk about the, the Infinite Warfare beta. So, so, you know, Dragon Ball's Universe 2, just to sort of recap my thoughts on Xenoverse 1, I, I liked it a lot. I think it's the, the combat system was not amazing in Xenoverse 1, but it was just fun enough, and it was just sort of easily breakable enough that I could just kind of get through and be like, okay, yeah, I'm just flying around turning Super Saiyan and launching Kamehameha's. That's good enough for me. And it was mostly about the story and the atmosphere and, and that stuff of I, I liked being able to make my own character. I liked the conceit of going back through time and interfering with or fixing the interference with Dragon Ball history by these two other characters and stuff. And it being able to sort of tell its own Dragon Ball story while still being able to sort of show you, you know, hey, here's Goku fighting Frieza, here's Gohan fighting Cell, here's all the shit you know, and now, but now you get to go in and like also fight Cell with Gohan and that kind of stuff. So that was all fun. I like how they set up all the character stuff and, and training, learning all your different moves and training with Dragon Ball characters and all that. So Dragon Ball's universe, flawed game for sure, but if you're a fan of Dragon Ball, I think it was a very fun game. Xenoverse 2, it just feels like it is a lot of the same as Xenoverse 1. It's just fixed up a lot. Like, there's, they have fixed Super Saiyan so that it's not the completely game-breaking thing it was in the first game, where in the first game, when you turn Super Saiyan, your key meter would slowly drain, but while it was draining, you could use any super attack and use it for free, basically. So while you were Super Saiyan, you could just launch like your Super Kamehameha move as long as your Super Saiyan lasted without any penalty, which was 
an insane design decision. Just, like, objectively one of the most insane choices I've seen any video game make in a very long time. Xenoverse 2 just sort of handles it more the way you would expect of you charge up your key enough so that you can go Super Saiyan and every single playable race now has a different sort of version of a transformation move or a power-up move. Like, I think they call them, like, Awakened States or something. So there's a specific move slot that that goes into. So that's just sort of a, like, universal mechanic now, which I like a lot. And it just sort of, it's a temporary power-up kind of thing. And that's a lot better of a system. And it, it does, it allows you to sort of engage with the combat more. Because as soon as you went Super Saiyan in the first game, you stopped punching things. There was no reason to punch things. There's no reason to engage with the normal combat system. Because you're just using ultimate attacks over and over and over again. So, you know, I, I think it's that all that stuff, the combat just feels smoother. It just it feels like it's been better balanced. It feels like they fixed some of the, the weird issues and the stuff how Super Saiyan worked. And so all that I think is better, but it is the same basic system as Universe 1. The main area that I think is Universe 2, just based on what my limited time with the beta that they've improved a lot, is the sort of the hub world stuff and the structure of it feels like it's just a lot more fleshed out. Like in Universe 1, you had a very small hub world where you could that had like a couple of shops basically and then you could go do your like side quests and your your main missions and here it's a much more expansive city and there are a lot more areas to go to and like different kinds of things to do you can unlock vehicles that you can kind of travel around with to get extra speed and then they kind of tease you that at some point you will get a flying license so that your character can just fly around in the city and all that stuff just feels like they took the base that was Universe 1 and just said, okay, what worked about this? What didn't? Like, let's just make a sort of by-the-number sequel that just improves the the kind of rough foundation of the first game, which is what I think Universe 1 really needed. My favorite part, though, of the beta is after you do the tutorial and all of that stuff, you, you're talking to the Supreme Kai of Time, who she sort of, like, rules over time, and she is the one who sort of, like, recruited your character in the first game and all that stuff. This game takes place like thousands of years in the future or whatever, however time works in this like dimension or whatever it is. It takes place way after the events of the first game. And so you are a different kind of time controller and you are part of like an academy of all these people training to sort of like do this thing of fixing history. And so once you go through your sort of like tutorial stuff, the Supreme Kai of Time is kind of walking you through the city and she says... And, you know, blah, 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 like many millennia ago, like this, this great hero saved Toki Toki City and fixed all of history. And here it is. And then it gives you a screen of now pick your Xenoverse 1 hero. And if you have Xenoverse 1 save data, you can pick one of your creative characters from the first game. And it will carry over some of, like, the moves that that character had and the gear they had on, which is cool. But the best part is, once you pick that, it cuts to back to the scene. And now it shows you this giant hologram standing there of your Xenoverse 1 character just standing there giving thumbs up. That's and, awesome. And he is there forever. Like, it is just your f character for the first game standing this giant hologram in the main plaza giving thumbs up forever. And that... That is fucking, that is a, an amazing decision. Whoever on that team thought, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to carry over stuff from Xenoverse 1, that is the maybe the best version of that I've ever seen any video game do, because that's like, that's fucking perfect. Yes. But yeah, like... That's I, what Destiny 2 should do. Exactly, yeah. Like, you should just... What it, it, like, everyone obviously in their, like, version of the tower, they see their hero, but, like, yes. yeah, you should just see a giant fucking gold statue of your guardian, guardian from Destiny 1 and Destiny 2. Exactly. If you're going to 
pick a different protagonist, I think that's the way to go is to just way over the top deify your main character from the first game. Although then also like, whatever happened to him though? Like I, I wonder if that's going to be part of the story or something at some point. It's like it feels kind of conspicuous that. Yeah. This this great hero that is like more powerful than the most powerful characters in Dragon Ball that like saved all of history itself, who for whatever reason he was more powerful than everyone else, but he could only ever go Super Saiyan two. But that the, the logic of power levels in Dragon Ball broke a long time ago, so whatever. But he just sort of disappeared into nothingness. So who knows? Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, I was not a big fan of Xenoverse one, and I really don't have plans to play Xenoverse 2 unless I don't know maybe you tell me it's really really good or if yeah or I, people, I I my, my sense is that if you if you did not like Xenoverse 1 I don't think okay. I mean, again I, like I only played like an hour of it so and I'll say this it's, it's a taste thing like I am not really into the the 3D fighter thing that Dragon Ball has done since the the Tenkaichi Budokai games um where I think like I, I like it being more of a side view fighter thing. Right. I'm not. I it just and I thought Xenoverse like the camera stuff and the way it moved just was not my thing. I liked all the other stuff around it that you were describing. I was just more down on the fighting system. I'm actually I am excited for a Dragon Ball game this year. Right. It's just yeah. it's the portable one, Dragon Ball Fusions, because I think the I really tend to like the portable Dragon Ball games. But I'm glad to hear that they've added a lot of cool stuff for Xenoverse too because. Uh, it sounds like, you know, because I've, I've played it, I know Xenoverse 1 was a flawed game, but with a lot of potential, and for those who liked it, I'm glad there will be a sequel that is an improvement. Yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy to... I also think they they did the thing that every Dragon Ball game sequel does, which is, in the first one, at least, if in the first game, you did all of the normal Dragon Ball Z stuff, and you have, like, all those characters of, like, from, like, Raditz to Boo, then what do you do in the sequel? You get the movie characters. And so in like the first story mission, you do your thing where you've helped Goku and Piccolo defeat Raditz who somehow got super powerful and then you finish that mission and the camera pans over to this hill and you just see Lord Slug and Turles from the, those two Dragon Ball Z movies <laughs> standing there. It's like, okay, I know where this is kind of going somehow. Is like I, I assume some of the, the villain characters from the first universe game are going to be involved in some way. The ones that you didn't just sort of straight up kill. But... I like that somehow they're just like, yeah, this is kind of our the, our last hand to play. It's been our last hand to play in this franchise for a very long time is we do the movie characters. Yes. I'm just curious, like, how... How much of Dragon Ball Super do you think this game will incorporate? Um, I'm curious about I don't, that. I know that um, there's, like, for a pre-order thing or something like that, that the Goku Black, who's one of the main villains for the current Dragon Ball Super arc, is in there. I don't know if there's going to be... Any of that, like the others. I mean, obviously, um, Beerus and Whis were in Dragon Ball Z Universe right. One. Like the the movie stuff is definitely going to be a part of Z Universe Two. But I don't know. Like I have, I have actually like caught up, not all the way up on Dragon Ball Super, but I watched oh, wow. up to the Future Trunks arc. I did that kind of a while ago when okay. I started first started reading the manga because it was kind of easy to get through. So and like having watched up to that part, the, there's only one other character named Hit that like, yeah. I think would even fit in a game like that. Like, there's yeah, not a huge number of sort of new big fighting characters that they introduced. So, right. Well, because the first two arcs are just the movies. Yeah, so. exactly. And so, and then the, the arc that they do after that, there's only one character that I'm like, okay, I can see them playing that guy in the game. But. Okay. Well, cool. Um, that's Xenoverse Two. Yeah. So the Infinite Warfare beta. Yes. So you've been playing that. I I I played. Only- one match last night, and I played one match this morning. Yeah, right I played. I've played two matches too. Yeah. So not a lot. Oh, can I give my reaction? Because sure, yeah. you've played a Call of Duty game more recently than me. Yes. I have not played Call of Duty since Modern Warfare 3. So it's, yeah. it's been a while. Yeah. 
Jesus Christ, Call of Duty got complex. Joke, yeah, yeah. I, no. I've never seen the pick 10 system. I've never seen all this advanced customization again. The last one I touched was Modern Warfare 3, which seemed insane at the time, relatively sane. Like, I'm, they're walking me through all the, like, the, the create a class and yeah. the loadouts, and I'm like, I have no idea what the fuck is going on. And luckily, you can kind of just just pick an assault rifle and shoot people. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty you much. Don't have to worry about it. But gee, that game got complex. I just want to say that. Yeah. Like to anyone else who has been out of Call of Duty for a while, it's a shock to the system. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt when I got into the Advanced Warfare multiplayer. Was like, oh, okay. Like the creative class stuff is really different now. I mean, yeah. I, I think the Pick Ten system is great, but it is definitely very intimidating. And I think the beta kind of just throws you into it because they just kind of unlock creative class from. Like the start, that's which I the, assume the game, the full game's not going to do that because Call of Duty's never really done that. Yeah, and I just wanted to say, like, I do think if you haven't played the beta yet and you can get in, you should, um, because the beta is really polished for for this kind of thing. I mean, it's got all this customization, it's got a couple of maps. Like, it, it does, it doesn't feel like a super early version of it or anything. Yeah, and it doesn't. Yeah, it feels it's a bit more fully fleshed out than like the Titanfall two betas that felt like they kind right. of like played their cards really close to their chest it was like you didn't get a lot of the customization and you only got like two maps or whatever right and it's Call of Duty they're not going to spoil anything it's yes yeah you've played I mean if you specifically if you have played any Black Ops 3 at all which I played the Black Ops 3 beta like this time last year like this is the Black Ops 3 multiplayer like with like different stuff like it is the same basic format of that it is not like Advanced Warfare it's it's all the movement system and stuff like that is the Black Ops 3 version. Okay. Yeah. And I, again, I'm not up on any yeah, of this. Yeah. But uh, I was moderately impressed just because, like, one thing I just remember from my Call of Duty days being something that Call of Duty always kind of just fell on its face with was the maps being just kind of the same and not very interesting. Yeah. It's and like the, once you fought in one city block, you fought in every city block. And I'll say, clearly the people making Advan- or Infinite Warfare have had fun with being able to be in the future, because yeah. both maps I played on were really fun just to walk around and look at. Yeah. Like, they were very visually interesting. They looked very kind of Bioshock or Fallout 4-esque in terms of, like, being an imaginative future. Yeah. And I liked that about them. Um, other than that, I don't know how many conclusions I have. It's Call of Duty with more movement stuff now. It feels, uh, movement-wise, a lot like Titanfall, actually. To sure, me, yeah. It, where like you can run on the walls and, stuff, and yeah. clam, uh, clamber and all that stuff. Um, so it's fine. It's good. I realized that uh, maybe I'm just a point in my life where I never need to play Call of Duty again because I got through two matches and I was like, I'm so done with this because it's like, I am not good enough to play this game. Right, yeah. I have not been around enough. Maybe I could enjoy a campaign again. But this was like, I was not. I got like five kills in the first match and a few in the next one and I just was not doing well. But anyway... That was my reaction. Yeah, yeah. Like, my reaction is... I mean, I kind of already gave it. Is it, Like, it's a lot like the Black Ops 3 multiplayer, which, like, I, I just... Personally, I prefer the, the way the Advanced Warfare handled the movement because, like, for those who don't remember, Advanced Warfare basically had this really sort of, like, fundamental shift for how the movement worked in that you had these kind of, like, dash moves you could do at any point. And obviously, and you had, like, stuff that, like, the Black Ops 3 slash Infinite Warfare stuff has also of, like, you know, you have your slide and you had a double jump. But it was mostly the fact that, like, at any point, whether you were in the air, whether you were on the ground, you could just do a dash in basically any direction. So you could have, like, this really fast burst of lateral movement if you wanted to get behind a wall or around a corner. And you could use that the stuff to sort of, like, really get this interesting momentum that allowed you to kind of slingshot around the map by running, doing a boosted slide, 
double jumping and then doing a boost allowed you to get like this huge amount of height and like speed and this like really interesting arc that allowed you to just on some maps like just like kind of leap over buildings leap up through to like second story windows and shoot people i thought like the advanced warfare movement system because it gave you that very fundamental ability to just have this burst of speed in any direction at any point allowed you to be a lot more creative with it because there's just this movement mechanic that you could use at any point no matter what and so you could do kind of whatever you wanted to within the rule set of the game and that i know some of the call of duty community kind of had a backlash against that because it could be kind of broken in some ways and it could break like the map balance on different maps and i totally understand those arguments but at the same time like i just think the fundamental idea of that mechanic is so much more interesting than the wall running and like sort of floaty like jump packed stuff that Black Ops 3 and Infinite Warfare has. I mean, I'll just say this about it. I'm not sure, and I haven't played a ton, I'm not sure what it adds to multiplayer. Yeah. Like, like what you were describing sounds like it would way more alter strategy. It does, yeah. This is more, especially because the maps are, while, this, while they look really nice and I think they're well built, in terms of the actual, like, architecture of them, they're very traditional Call of Duty maps, which is a city block and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I, I don't know what it changes about that, really. Um, in fact, yeah. I found I was dying a lot because I was distracted trying to run on walls and shit. Yeah, I think the wall running it, in first-person games, it just doesn't... Like, even, like, Titanfall, I think, does it better because the maps are a little bit better designed around it. And I think the Titan mechanic sort of makes the wall running stuff a little bit more useful for how it allows you to gain height. But even then, a lot of times, wall running just feels like... It, just, it, it feels kind of, like, unnecessary for me. Like, it feels... Like, you can have different movement mechanics that do what wall running does, but do it more interestingly and in a more sort of dynamic way. Where wall running, a lot of times, it's just like, I don't need to, like, the only reason I need to run on this wall is because you didn't put a fucking floor here. Like, that's not, that's not interesting. That's not, that's just like, all you did was take out the floor, so now I have to run on a fucking wall. Like, fuck off. No. Like, if you just put a floor here, I would could run around this corner and it would be no different. And, like, there are very small things that wall running makes different about going around that corner, but it's not so significant that, like, you need to do that. It needs to be a mechanic like you. I could just kind of find it overall distracting. But it's not that big of a, like, mechanic in the game, so you can kind of mostly ignore it. And, and honestly, I found myself, when I was just ignoring it and kind of keeping my boots on the ground, you're a lot more effective because the time to kill is so short that it's like, you want to just be kind of stable and aiming and killing people, and all the doofuses running around on fucking walls all the time are just like, you know, it's just like birds in the air that you get to, like, shoot down with your fucking shotgun, you know? Right. But yeah, so like that, the wall, like I just, it's a, it, partially it's a personal preference thing. I think that is something where the wall running stuff could be better implemented both in Black Ops 3 and in Infinite Warfare. And I wish, like I hope Sledgehammer, because they have next year's game, I hope that they keep the basic idea of the Advanced Warfare movement system and just refine it instead of sort of like throwing it out the window and doing something else. But overall, I, I enjoyed my time with the beta, like, like the limited amount of time I spent with it. It is fundamentally call of duty i do like the aesthetic of this game more than i did black ops in the sense of i like the point they are in sort of like the military sci-fi i like the like dawn of the space age stuff a lot more than just sort of like the weird like eh, we're just kind of on earth but we have slightly better guns and there's guys with robot hands you know i like the no fuck that like we are breaking out into this new frontier and you have some maps that are set on other planets and it's like it feels like it, like humanity has like taken its first step into space 
and doesn't really know what it's doing yet is kind of the sense I get from the, the aesthetic. And I'm really excited about the potential for that on the campaign side. So I like that aspect more than Black Ops 3. And I like the... I, I the One of the main things I didn't like about the Black Ops 3 multiplayer that they have kind of like reworked here is that Black Ops 3 you had like characters that you played as that were like these weird like specific voiced people that had their like sort of special move and stuff attached to it. And I thought that was strange and it felt like them almost kind of like chasing a MOBA thing or something where you have different hero characters you play as. Whereas this, it's just, you have the special move kind of stuff because that helps them differentiate the classes that in different ways. But here it's just all based around like you have this combat rig and that's what gives you this like ability. It's not like you're this weird dude that carries gravity spikes around with him who's a fucking piece of shit, but it's my favorite ability so I'm going to have to use him anyways. I didn't like the personality of Black Ops 3, whereas Infinite Warfare, I think that sort of aligns with me a little bit better. But yeah, end of the day, if you like Call of Duty, it is it is still Call of Duty. It's just like, you know, if you like the sort of early Space Age stuff, this is maybe a little bit more your taste than some of the other earlier Call of Duty things. Yeah, I um, <clears throat> and maybe I can transition into talking about Gears of War 4 with this. Right. I'm kind of waffling on whether or not I'm going to play Infinite Warfare. I I don't know if I, I need to play another shooter this year. Part of this is my prof, like profoundly after playing Doom. Yeah. I don't know if I ever need another first person shooter in my life. It's like that 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 did it for me. Yeah, or like another new one. Um, but yeah, it's just I was playing Infinite Warfare, and again, it's it's just the beta of the multiplayer campaign could be totally different. But generally, I don't like Call of Duty campaigns, so. I don't know. It's I'm kind of interested in it on a journalistic level. I don't know if I actually want to spend the time and, and money to play it, right? Um, because it just kind of it's like right. This is a this is a first person shooter. This is the kind of there are console first person shooters. This is the kind of thing I played back when I was sort of in high school, and I don't know if I have ruined my life for that anymore. And boy, did I feel that a lot about Gears of War four. Yeah. So you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Well, right. Obviously, like I haven't really played any of it, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Oh yeah, and you can ask questions and stuff. Yeah. Help me guide this. But yeah, so Gears of War 4, I have played through the whole campaign. I've played a little multiplayer. I haven't really played Horde mode yet. That's the thing I'm kind of excited to still check out at some point, because um, that's usually the highlight of Gears of War these days. Yeah. So, um, but uh, that's, this is enough to make a little review of, right? This campaign sure, yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um, it's okay. I don't, I can't muster much enthusiasm beyond that. It's okay. Yeah. There are things this game does very well. There are things this game does exceptionally poorly. There are things that frustrate me about it. There are things that excite me about it. And it's I wish it were as simple as me just saying it's another Gears of War game, which is kind of what I quipped up front. Because on some level it is. Like, it is almost shocking how little the Coalition has changed anything. Like, and I'm going to make this comparison a lot because everyone else is. You have to compare this to Halo 4. Because that was the moment when another Microsoft franchise transferred sort of to another studio and they had to kind of prove themselves and it was partially of people who worked at the old studio Bungie or Epic you know yeah and you're kind of seeing how it's going to work and I think I I have active contempt for opinions that are saying this is somehow better than Halo 4 because while I do think Halo 4 is flawed in some ways particularly on the multiplayer side which doesn't really affect anything anymore if you go back and play it you're probably not going to play multiplayer although you can it's on the Master Chief Collection I guess and the servers are still up on 360. I don't know who's playing it still. But. Yeah, my guy. The Halo 4's multiplayer population died fast enough before there was a new Halo game out. Right, know? so... I don't know if there's anyone playing it anymore. But I think what was interesting to me about Halo 4 and what is sort of, uh, on the flip side, uninteresting to me about Gears of War 4 
is that I think 343 really took that opportunity. And keep in mind, that was only two years after the last Halo game. This is five years after the last Gears game. Yeah. So there's a big gap there. And it's only two years later they really thought, we're going to reinvent Halo on some level. We're going to really rethink how we do the story. So Master Chief talks in levels. Cortana is an even more active presence. That relationship is going to be interrogated more. We're going to see, you know, what kind of changes have there been to this world since the last game. And we're going to have a focus story that kind of helps us do this character work. And there are problems along the way. But overall, I thought Halo 4 was just invigorating on a gameplay level, on a visual level, where they really tried to rework the aesthetics of Halo. It does not look like other Halo games. Yeah. And all this stuff. So I, I and, and I just think Halo Four is a really solid, good campaign, and I like it an awful lot. Um, Gears of War Four is a Gears of War game in the basics. Like it has, like down to the weapon wheel looks identical to Gears of War Three. The weapons play identically to Gears of War Three. The basic, the menu looks exactly like Gears of War Three. Like this feels like a sequel that came out two years after Gears of War Three, whereas Halo Four has always felt to me like a game that was somehow five years. Past Halo 3. Well, I guess it was, but Halo Reach being the previous one. You know, it was only two more years. And that was kind of amazing because it really was kind of a generational leap, even though it was at the end of the 360, not the beginning of the Xbox One. Yeah, like, say what you will about Halo 4. Like, it has its issues for sure. Like, even, like, the storytelling is its problems in certain areas. But there's no doubt that there's a sense of, like, this is 343's version of Halo. It is not 343 just trying to imitate Bungie, you know. Yes, and I will say this. I mean, if you're just looking for the absolute fundamentals, yes, Gears of War 4 has the fundamentals of Gears of War down more than probably Halo 4 or certainly Halo 5 has the fundamentals of Halo down. Yeah. But that's because 343 was kind of rethinking what the fundamentals of Halo are, including a new enemy type. You know, like the primary enemies in Halo 4 are not the Covenant. And I'm going to spoil Gears of War 4, not that I think this is a series that will be ruined for you by spoiling it or anything. Sure. But... So I'm going to walk you through some of my problems with the campaign. Okay. So like I said, the basics are just, it is Gears of War, and at the beginning it is striking how much, like visually this looks better, but this is exactly what I was playing five years ago. Uh, so that's on the basic, like, fundamental level. Right. But then you start playing the campaign, and the first two acts of the campaign are a really weird split to me, where I really like in the beginning of Gears of War 4 what they're doing with the story and the world building and the characters. In that it's, five, it's you know, 25 years after Gears of War 3 and, and Marcus and everyone defeated the Locust and they sent out that like emulsion pulse or whatever at the right. end of Gears 3. And so the world is kind of in a different state. The Locusts are gone, but there's some problems on their planet, Sarah, because of what they did to defeat the Locust. And there's sort of these um, big human settlements that are sort of run by like government oversight. And then there are people who live outside in other settlements and you you play as J.D. Phoenix, who is Marcus Phoenix's son, and some of his friends, and they're, you know, young, and they live in one of these outside settlements, and they're trying to, like, you know, scavenge to survive. And some of the early stuff, which is like a tour through this new world, is aesthetically and, like, atmosphere-wise very interesting. Like, there's this one part, there's some parts early on that, honestly, are they are clearly taking from, like, Naughty Dog, The Last of Us, where you're not shooting, you're walking around and seeing things. And one of those is you have to go through this building that is this breeding center right yeah. where like because humanity was so underpopulated at the end of the locust war they are really encouraging men and women to you know get it on and, and have babies and stuff and one of the main characters in the game kate who's like your second player um she's you know noting how much this kind of disgusts her because that's not where she wants to go in her life and that's part of why i think she's left the human the main human settlements yeah. and that's such an interesting direction for things 
And most of that stuff is not even mentioned in the last three acts of the game. So there is some really interesting story stuff up top. Meanwhile, the gameplay in those first two acts is awful, and I don't know how people are defending it. It is so bad. It is so boring, because what they have is their new enemy type, because their yeah. art locust is robots. Yep, I've seen this. And I, just on a basic level, robots don't bleed. No. Gears of War has a chainsaw gun. You have a chainsaw gun when you're fighting the robots. You can chainsaw the robots like you always have, and you're cutting an enemy in half that doesn't bleed. I know this sounds petty. You're not understanding what Gears of War was about if you have enemy types that cannot show gore. Yeah. Like, is that too petty of me, or does that make sense as a... So, I mean, yeah, it's something that I've found really sort of odd once I've like read some of their reviews and I, I watched some video stuff. And it's like, okay, yeah, so the robots are what they went with. That, I'm with you, that like seems like it's a strange... I get that you want to... I go okay. Like we'll talk about this like later, obviously. But I get that you want to get away from the locust stuff some, but like going to robots seems like such a strange choice. Especially it's, like there's, I just have a question on like a purely like physical level of like how fucking flimsy are these robots that you can chainsaw them? Like it's a chainsaw. Chainsaws. Right. I mean, it, chainsaws shouldn't even really like go through bone that easily, but. Like, they certainly, like, shouldn't be able to just fucking cut through fucking plate metal, you know? Right. And it's... So, I'm, I know I'm complaining on kind of the petty aesthetic side of it just doesn't feel Gears of War-esque. And I know this is a tough thing, and we'll talk about it more, of how do you balance moving forward while being what you are. Yeah. Which, you know, I thought Halo did really well in Halo 4, and then fell on its fucking face in Halo 5. So we yeah. can talk about this with both series. Um but the bigger problem with the robots is they do not at all like complement the basic Gears of War combat system, which again is fundamentally unchanged from Gears of War 3. It's, it's the same. If you play Gears of War 3 down to the button placement, it is the same thing. And, but all the robots are super bullet spongy. Like, and I know Gears of War had some enemies that I remember as being kind of bullet spongy. Yeah, but that was not the primary way you fought in that game. Like the, the main enemies, you shoot, you chainsaw, you're done, right? Yeah. But, like, every enemy, every robot just takes so much ammo. There's so many big bullet spongy enemies. And for some reason, the first two acts of that game have no ammo anywhere. Like, huh. so little that you're constantly having to, like, try to scrounge with your fucking snub and shoot. And, like, you can shoot your you know, 100 rounds of the snub and you're not going to kill any of those robots. You're not going to do a goddamn thing because they are such bullet sponges. And so that's really weird. And it is... Act 3, 4, and 5 totally open up And once you're fighting the enemies that are not bullet sponges They give you more ammo than you need I don't know what design decision that was But it baffled me huh. Anyway, so just the robots and like the way they move And that a lot of like the combat encounters In those first two acts are sort of where you're at a distance And you're supposed to be doing more ranged stuff But Gears of War is not a ranged shooter It no, has it's, some it, guns it's, it's about flanking around enemies And getting up close with your shotgun yeah. or your chainsaw Right, and you really can't do that With a lot of these enemies And it's just bad I think you could rework Gears of War combat And maybe work with a different kind of enemy type like this But if you're just saying It's going to play like Gears of War 3 And then you have enemies that feel like They are out of a totally different game Again, I liked a lot in terms of the world building and the graphics and the character stuff in those first two acts. But good God, every time I saw a robot, I was just like, I want to kill myself. This is so not fun because it's like, I'm going to empty my entire Lancer and then I'm going to start firing a shotgun from so far away because I can't even get down to them. It was just very frustrating. 
But then the game makes a weird flip around Act 3 to the end, where the gameplay improves significantly because they introduce a different enemy type, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But the story frustrates me, and they are so entwined, you can't separate them. So what happens is, you find out, like, basically, um, the progression is at the end of Act 1, Act 1 is just kind of an intro, and then at the end of Act 1, Kate's mother and her entire village are kidnapped by these weird new enemies, and so she and JD... For some reason, Kate is not the main character in this game, and remind me to talk about this later, because it frustrates me. JD has no reason to exist in this game. Kate has the arc, and for some reason you play as JD. I don't get it. Anyway, but because you're you're going after Kate's mother for the entire game, and for some reason she's not the protagonist. Bizarre. Anyway, um, so you have to go find them, and so they go find old man Marcus Phoenix, which happens right off the bat. That's Act 2, Scene 1. So it's like very early in the game. I kind of thought maybe you'd be searching for Marcus... Which would be weird because that's also the plot of Gears of War 3 is Marcus looking for his dad. Yeah. But it would be kind of funny if Gears 4 was now JD looking for his dad and just the same thing. Yeah, it's just <laughs> Gears of War is a series about absent fathers. It's what yes. we said the whole time. No, but uh, you find Marcus kind of right away. And then for most of Act 2, you're trying to get out of Marcus's estate. And there is some fun stuff there. I still just don't like the robots as combat encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after Act 2, basically, you, you kind of discover those enemies... That have kidnapped Kate's mother and the, the village. And now you're going to go after them. And you have to go find this locust burial site. Because for some reason these new enemies are con- converging there. And so I'm kind of like, alright, where are they going with this? Yeah, and where are they going with this? Obviously? Basically the new enemy type you fight throughout Act 3 is an enemy type called the Swarm. Which huh. are just the locust. I don't What do you mean? They're called they're, the Swarm, Jonathan. They're, they're called the Swarm, but they're I mean... The swarm. They look identical. They have like some different names for them, but they all function. It would be like if Halo 4 didn't have the Covenant, but it had like the Alien Bros. And instead of Grunts, it had like, you know, small aliens. And instead of Elites, it had big aliens. You know, it's the same thing. I don't and, know what you're saying, Jonathan. If it's a different name, it's a different thing. We all know that. No, but it's, it's just the Locust, but they're called the Swarm. And... Surprise, surprise, the game gets so much more fun when you're fighting them because that's what the combat system is built for and they feel so much more at home building encounters around these. And I think there's some other things that go on where I think they just become legitimately much more creative in the back half of the game with how they handle combat. But some of it is just the comfort of we have the same enemy type as before. Yeah. But then in Act 4 and 5, guess what? The Swarm are literally just evolved forms of the Locust. Oh, okay. And now you just have the Locust back. The locusts didn't die. They're fine. So the game just rolls it back. It's just like, the locusts are still here. We gotta fight them. And it is so profoundly, spectacularly unimaginative with how it figures we're gonna continue the Gears of War story, which is just, we're gonna dick around for a couple acts, and then we're gonna bring the same enemies back as before with a kind of paper-thin excuse for how they survived. And that's the game. And What, what is the paper-thin excuse? Uh, they've been hibernating underground. But how did they survive the thing that kills all the locusts? Um, after Gears of War 3, apparently they threw all of the locust bodies in a big deep hole. And that's where you have to go, is like to the big deep hole, because that's where the swarm are going. And they've been in Cocoon since then, even though they were dead, I guess. And they're also like kidnapping human... Because the swarm, some of the swarm types are like reanimated human corpses. They're sort of like zombies, even though they don't look or act like zombies. And so I guess they were also like feeding off the planet to like get their life energy back. But now the locusts are reawakening underground, and it's just going to be the same as the last uh, three games. Okay. I mean, it would be like if Halo 4 started, and like the Covenant, and I know there are Covenant in Halo 4, but they specifically say this is like a different offshoot, yeah. right? 
But if it was like literally just like the Arbiter attacked. And you're like, I thought we were friends. And he's like, um, we're fighting the humans again. And then it's just like, shit, we gotta deactivate another Halo or something. Like, it's so unimaginative. And yet, this is the huge paradox of this game. The game gets so much better when you're fighting the Locust again. Or the Swarm, or whatever you want to call them. They're the same thing. And the game is so much more on its home turf. And it is so much better. But at the same time, I was so frustrated by the story. So it is this weird thing where Acts 1 and 2... Like the story, like the direction, hate the gameplay. Acts 3, 4, and 5, am really confused by what they're doing with the story, but the gameplay is really solid, and in fact, Act 5 is fantastic, and significantly, like, I would be significantly more down on the game if it weren't for the last act, because it's very good, and I wish the rest of the game were that creative. Huh. But... Yeah. yeah. So do you think that ultimately, like, this new trilogy will just end with, like, the humans blowing up Sarah? Because it's just like, well, fuck this. Like, we can't fucking... We already killed all you fuckers. We, we just have to blow up the planet. We just have to blow up the planet. Just fuck it. It's over. I mean, Give I up. guess. But then they're going to have to make Gears of War 7 at some point, And then what do they do? Are they going to take that opportunity to be creative with it? I don't know. And... It's frustrating because the best things about the game is when it's just doing what the other Gears of War games did. And it, other than Act 5, it never quite does it at a level that is so good that I wouldn't kind of rather just be playing Gears of War 3 or something. Right. Or Gears of War 1 even. Go back and do one of those again. And that's such a big dilemma, I feel like. And it's such a problem with it. Like, again, the best character in this game is Marcus Phoenix. That's a problem. Yeah. If you're going to make a new trilogy and you're marketing it around his son and these new characters, and JD and Dell. So you have your team of the like the young people is JD, Dell, and Kate. Dell is nothing. He is there to make quips that are really shitty. He is a total blank as a character. JD is also pretty much nothing. I think his voice actor is good, but he's not. He doesn't have an arc. He doesn't have anything interesting. And frankly, he doesn't even need to be in the game because Kate could still go search out for Marcus Phoenix because she would know who he is. He's the guy right. who defeated the yeah. fucking Locust. So it's like all of that is confusing to me. You don't need JD in the game. And then there's Kate who is voiced by Laura Bailey, which does like 95% of the work, frankly. Cause yeah. if you, it's like when you get Troy Baker or Nolan North, it's like you're going to have a halfway decent character. Yeah. You know, you have that actor. They're going to do a good job. So that's like 95% of it. But she also, because she has an arc, because she has to like, she has the actual drive in the game to do things. She just should be the main character. And I actually think you could make the Marcus Phoenix stuff more interesting if it was not his estranged son going to find him if it was someone he maybe didn't know. And that would be kind of cool. But anyway, so the new characters just kind of fall flat. Marcus is a lot of fun because he's Marcus, and that voice is awesome and yeah. hilarious. And I think the game, on the one thing I will give the writing is it, it knows how to modulate Marcus and make him funny in that not that he is out there cracking jokes, but just that he is funny because he is such a big, burly, off-the-wall guy, you know? Yeah. So that's good. And again, and part of why I like Act 5, too, is that all his other surviving teammates come to the rescue. And it's like, I love, you know, these guys... I don't even remember how, like, all the, like, intricacies of who died in Gears of War 3. Uh, the only one who died, I think, is Dom. Oh, okay. And then... Wait, they, have, they never killed Baird? No, Baird's alive. Baird was the Baird. star of the, the spin-off one, Judgment. But that was a prequel. Right, but no. Baird actually is, is like, the, the hero at the end of the game in this one. Really? He Okay, so here's the thing. So the, the robots you're fighting are called DBs. And it stands okay. for Damon Baird because he built the robots, you find Oh, out. of course he did. That fucking asshole. He built yeah. the evil robots. But they're not... He didn't build the evil ones. Like, someone else... They, they, no, is, he built the evil ones. You haven't go, played Gears of War 5 yet. Okay. 
anyway, they, they go into it. But, like, that's another whole thing with the robots that is so weird is that you find, like... I'm not even going to get into it. There's all this stuff about who's, like, running this world, but it's only relevant for, like, two acts. And then they, they just... It feels like two different people wrote the two halves of the game. But anyway, all I was saying is that when the actual team comes back, kind of in the Anya's dead, too, she died between the games, they say. Of course she did. Fucking, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. You can't have two female characters in this no. game. What? No. Uh, anyway, so I was really... Because here, there's a whole scene where, like, because Anya is JD's mother. Obviously, so she yeah. And, yeah, she and Marcus Anya. got together. And I was very sad that there wasn't a moment where, like, they, they came across Anya's grave and Marcus did a sad Anya. They should have done that. Yeah. Like, I've, it would have been way better if Marcus had sort of just died in between games and, like, JD has to go get Anya to help him and, like, Anya's just there and she's fucking ripped as shit because <laughs> she's been working out in between Gears of War 3 and Gears of War 4 the whole time. Yeah. And she just, like, puts on Marcus Phoenix's do-rag that he took off at the end of Gears of War 3 and just, like, revs the chainsaws. It's like, let's fucking do this. Yeah. No, they don't do that. Um, but anyway, all I was saying is when the, the your your surviving team members come back, I'm like, hey, these are characters who actually kind of pop and are, are great yeah. characters. Like, but... The thing with Gears of War's cast of characters is that they're not like these interesting, deep, soulful creations or something. But they, they have personality. Like, they are they are very flat characters, but, like, they're flat at a very high level. So, like, yes. they, they stand out. And that's... For the kind of story that the Gears of War was telling, that worked. Like, the, the cast of characters from Gears of War 4, just looking at videos and stuff, particularly JD, just seems so bland and nothing and just generic. And it's like, I fucking, every video I've seen of Gears of War 4, I just come away, like, hating JD Phoenix. Because he seems like the most nothing fucking protagonist I've seen in the games in a long time. I mean, if you're going to do Marcus Phoenix's son, I don't know how you don't have the same guy just voice both of them and do something silly with just, it. Just, like, pitch his voice up slightly so yes. it sounds like he's in his 20s. Yeah, I... It's... It's disappointing on all those levels. There's some good gameplay stuff. It's... Look, Gears of War is really solid. It always has been on a gameplay sure, yeah, level. Yeah, of course. But I will say this. It's... It is just as solid as it was in 2011, but... It's, I don't want to play a game from 2011. Yeah, it's five years old. Like, Gears of War just seems so old at this point to make a new one that is just one of those games. Like, I feel I mean, like we've moved past Gears of War. Down to things like the way you throw the grenades is so clunky and always kind of felt that way. You can evolve that. Yeah. And they haven't. And there, there are good things about the campaign. People have talked a lot about how it's very varied. It is to a degree. I'm not sure how much you can actually vary Gears of War because it's what it is. Um, you know, I like there are parts in the campaign. There are three parts where they basically just have you play Horde mode, and it speaks to how good Horde is that those are probably the best, some of the best levels in the game. Um, the first one's awful because it's robots, but the other two are very good. Particularly, there's this one where you're on this transport heading down, and they have you do a Horde thing, and that one's pretty cool. Uh, and then I like the one at the end of the game too. So, you know, it can be fun, it can be diverting, and I will say this, I played it in co-op with my brother who has never really played a Gears of War, he's played some oh. multiplayer with me, but he's never like, and we played some of Gears of War 2, but that is such a slog, um, we oh, never... Yeah, that campaign yeah. is rough. Yeah, that campaign's rough. Um, so he, but that was so long ago, like, this was basically new to him, and he enjoyed it a lot. And I will say, I think if you're totally new to this, you will not have some of the same problems, but I'm also guessing not many people buying Gears of War 4 are new to it. Yeah, exactly. So, 
you know, it, it's worth noting. It's a huge technical accomplishment. It's another game I can't believe is running on the Xbox One as well as it is. There's some graphical effects and stuff that are great. This is the first Gears of War game where I would say there are parts that are absolutely beautiful. Gears of War, Gears of War is not usually graphically beautiful. Right, yeah. So that's cool. Um, you know, the, the campaign runs at 30 frames per second is generally pretty consistent. There are some parts where it gets super crazy, and I don't really blame the game for that. There's some frame rate dips. Uh, multiplayer and Horde is at 60 frames per second, and that looks really good. And on PC, you can run it however the hell you want. It's a true PC game. My brother's been playing it on his PC in 4K and everything, and he says it's just uh, unbelievable looking and stuff. So that's all nice. It's, you know, it's very polished. Um, there are some pro- there were at least this first week some problems with matchmaking and multiplayer where either it took too long to get into a match or when you did it was severely underpopulated huh. so I don't know what's going on there apparently they are trying to fix it um, they did have a beta for this game if I'm not mistaken so, yes they definitely did so I don't know why that wasn't kind of together but it wasn't so um, but it's fine I enjoyed what I played of the multiplayer it is Gears of War deathmatch the maps were fine. I just, I, I'm disappointed, and I don't even know if I can fully articulate that other than I, if I'm playing a game in 2016 that is supposed to be released in 2016, not like I'm going back and playing an old game, and it just feels like a game that was made in 2011, that's weird. And that's, it, Gears of War is not so perfect and flawless that it shouldn't evolve. In fact, it very much feels like it's of a different era to me, and the way they did it with this one just... Especially where it's straddling where they don't know how to treat the enemy types. Eventually they just bring back the old enemies because that's easier. And but the, I just love that they bring back the old enemies but call them something else. And then they just start calling them the old thing again. Yeah, pretty much. That's weird. It's so weird. It's I If you really, really love Gears of War, I recommend it. It's good. It's not like a bad game or anything. But I just it did not hold... I just found a lot of the campaign boring. And I, yeah. I don't know what else to say about it. I just found a lot of it kind of boring. And I don't know, this is a game where you have a chainsaw and a gun. It shouldn't be boring. <laughs> but it's it's the, the fourth or, I guess if you count Judgment, the fifth game where you've had a chainsaw on your gun. And not done anything different with it. Yeah, exactly. It's just, yeah, like, your reaction sounds like kind of exactly what I feared this game would be like after the E3 demo. of just like, this. it just it just looks like Gears of War. It just looks like Gears of War that, that like... That would be maybe okay if Gears of War 3 had come out two years ago instead of five years ago. But it came out five years ago. Or, like, cover shooters have changed. The, like, the market has changed. Like, like you need to adapt and evolve and innovate in some way. After that length of time, you can't just make a by-the-numbers sequel to a game that old. Yeah, you know, last night after we finished the campaign, uh, Thomas and I played some Halo 5 online because we hadn't done any matchmaking there. And there's some fun new stuff. And, you know, I have so many problems with Halo 5. It's one of the most profoundly disappointing games of my lifetime. But I can at least... After playing Gears of War 4, I appreciate the ambition of that game, even right. if it's broken ambition. Like, I would rather they... Because Gears of War 4 is, is fine, it's polished, it's solid. But I would rather you swing for the fences and miss, rather than not swing at all. And yeah. this felt like kind of a, a non-swing. It's... Because that's the thing. If you're going to make a game that's just Gears of War again... Don't try to hide it. That's another part of it for me that bothers me is it is, but in some parts it isn't and it's trying to be more and it either falls on its face or it finds something interesting or in the case of these new characters it's nothing, but then it feels identity challenged. If you did another one that was sort of like Judgment where it's a prequel or something, it's just more from the Locust War or something, at least then you're being honest about what it is and right. I can enjoy it on that level. I guess I wouldn't have as much of a problem getting into it. But it is 
strange and I don't know where you because also like this game does not tell much of a story on its own at all like you get to the end and nothing of consequence has really happened yeah, I've heard it's like ends on a cliffhanger or something sort of so. yeah it, it ends on a, a such an oblique cliffhanger that I don't know who is supposed to get it which is where um, basically you're searching for Kate's mom the whole time you find Kate's mom and it's the scene from Halo 1 where you have to like kill uh, Captain, Captain Keys. Keys it's the exact same kind of thing okay. and she does that or and, you need like the see Years of War 2 where Dom has to shoot his wife Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, same kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, but Kate's mom, while she's dying, drops or gives Kate this amulet that's like a family heirloom. And so okay. Kate gets the amulet and she's looking at it. In the last show, she's looking at it and like ominous music plays. And I and Thomas was like, are we supposed to know what that is? And I'm like, well, I've played the games and I don't know. So I looked it up and I guess it's supposed to be the symbol of the Locust Queen and okay. so for some reason, Kate is like, this, I don't know how that works. I'm not... That, like, Gears, that, that is the part of the Gears of War story that has never worked for me, is, like, them, like, playing coy with, like, all the shit with the Locust Queen. I never understood what the fuck was going on with that stuff in those games. No, I... Like, it always just seemed like there's some sort of, like, there's the, that whole part in Gears of War 2's campaign where they never resolve this shit, where you go to some weird fucking, like, secret lab where there's, like, experiments going on, it's where, like, the sire enemy type comes from, and it's, like, the, like that mission, like, has, like, razor hail and all this shit. It's, like, you do this whole mission, this is one of the worst missions of that game, of going through this lab and discovering all this, it's, like, there are experiments going on, and the cog are involved, and it's, like, locust and human shit, and it's basically the end of StarCraft Brood War, but, like, it's even more mysterious than that, and you're, like... Okay, and then Gears of War 2 doesn't resolve that. The Gears of War 3 happens and they never even fucking bring it up. It's like, what the fuck is going on with that shit in Gears of War story? I have never known. I mean, and that's especially baffling because, as you say, so much of the original trilogy is confusing. And you're doing Gears of War 4 25 years later. This is a chance to just have a fresh yeah, start. Yeah, just break off from that shit. Don't try to bring up the fucking Locust Queen again because she was like... Like, like she had some weird relationship with Marcus's dad or something, or I don't know. I, I don't, don't remember I don't all that get stuff. It. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Okay. Gears of War 4, whatever. Shin Godzilla, by the way, or uh, on the other hand. Yes. The, not as, as a follow-up to a like movie franchise that has been dormant for a long time, as opposed to follow-up to a game franchise that has been dormant for a long time. Right. Godzilla seems to be way more successful at that, doesn't it? Oh, man. There's so many things we can say about this movie, yeah. and we will. I want to start by asking you a question. Okay. Um, you said this on Twitter, and I thought this might be a good place to elaborate from. Your reaction to the movie on Twitter was you said, Shin Godzilla is like the Mad Max Fury Road, but for monster disaster movies. Yeah. Elaborate. Yeah, so yeah, like that was sort of... After I saw the movie, I felt like, I, well, I want to like do a tweet or something. Like, I want to like... I'm trying to process this movie and sort of, like, figure out what, like, the, my basic reaction to it was. And, like, that, for whatever reason, like, Mad Max Fury Road was what popped to mind because, well, obviously, like, you know, Mad Max Fury Road is an action movie and it's, like, an exemplary action movie, it, which is very different from what Shin Godzilla, Shin Godzilla is trying to do. Like, they elicited a similar, like, sort of effect in me in the sense of, like, you know, at the end of Mad Max Fury Road, like, I was literally on the edge of my seat, and I was like, my heart was pounding, like, this movie was amazing, this movie was intense. At the end of Shin Godzilla, like, the ad, like there's this haunting last shot, and then it cuts to the credits, and, like, literally there were gasps in our theater. Like, I think I might have audibly gasped. I wasn't even sure. But, like, after that, like, after it cut and, like, went to credits, like, I, like, went, oh, and I leaned back into my seat, and I realized, like, oh... I was just literally on the edge of my seat. Like, that's not even... That was not an expression. That was actually, like, sort of my physical 
reaction to this movie. And I think there's just something about both Shin Godzilla and Mad Max Fury Road that feel like they are these exemplars of their genre, that they that are both genres, the disaster movie and the action movie, that need to manage tension so tightly to be able to work effectively. And they have to do it in different ways, but both of those movies manage to do that so perfectly and at the same time telling this fascinating sort of political story and then there's many ways that both of the movies operate as allegories that like there's this kinship in them in a weird way and it's kind of i think no coincidence that the both of those movies are by far two of the best movies i've seen in, seen in theaters in probably my whole lifetime really it's just like i just had that sort of response from those movies it's like these are incredible movies that are the, the absolute top of their genre that push their genre to heights in some ways that they have never ever been at before and at the same time, they like they managed to tell this like interesting sort of political allegory story that is handled so deftly that like you almost never see, you know, regardless of the genre. Yeah, I mean, I, I I like that as a comparison because I think there are things in action movies or disaster movies or monster movies which are sort of related. They're like all cousins. These genres are sure, all sort yeah. of in the same family, even though they're very different. Um, where I think all these genres, even good examples of them, and we talked about a lot of good examples last week, for instance. Where there's just things that are slack about them. Yeah. In action movies, you have characters who fall flat. Or you have stories that get needlessly complex. Or you have, which is something that Mad Max really tried to go out of its way to solve, really poor representations of women. Or things like that right. that are just, you know, you can have a good action movie and these things will still take you out of it. Or in disaster slash monster movies, which I know are not always the same thing, but they can be, and this is definitely an example. I mean, any any giant monster movie that only has one monster and it's not a monster fighting movie, that's a disaster movie. Okay. Like, a, a movie with one giant monster versus a movie with two giant monsters, those are different genres as far as I'm concerned. No, and I get that, yeah. Um, but I think those kinds of movies, disaster movies, can be very slack in terms of pacing. They can be too slow. They can have bad human characters. They can gloss over things that you want to see more of and they can focus too hard on things you don't need to see and you know they can just feel very empty yeah. and i think mad max so fixes the slack nature of so many action movies and sheen godzilla so much fixes the slack nature of disaster movies which are generally to me a much lower bar yeah, to definitely. clear anyway and it still clears it to that same high level um i mean i said this in my review the there's no monster visible on screen in this movie for probably 15-20 minutes or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's maybe some hints. Um, and in those 15-20 minutes, it is intense to the point of, like, heart attack inducing. Of It is cut, cut, cut. They are yes, introducing yeah. dozens of characters, dozens of speaking parts. If you go back and look, many of those characters will become important in the movie and you wouldn't necessarily know right off the bat. Um but some of them will not be. There'll be one line and then you'll never see them again. As basically the movie starts with this disaster in Tokyo Bay. Where what we eventually find out is Godzilla is sort of emerging out of the sea. As he often does. Yes. Um, and so you have that starting. But it's all the boardrooms. It's the conference rooms. It's the spaces of bureaucracy. Elevators and hallways and all this stuff. And the directors are cutting from all these places. And introducing all these politicians and experts. And going around and around and around. And I thought for after the for maybe the 10 minute mark. I'm like... This would be just a wonderfully perverse thing to do if they did a Godzilla movie where, like, you never saw Godzilla. Yeah. And it was just in these rooms. And the thing is, they do it so well, I don't know if I would mind that. Yeah. No, and they like, do show you Godzilla. They show you Godzilla good in this movie. Oh, fucking yes, they do. And we'll get into that. But it's like, that stuff, that side of it is so good that you you almost... 
want to see the alternate reality version where they decided, fuck it. Yeah, like the stage play adaptation of this movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So do you see what I mean about that? Like those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Right off the bat, you can realize, okay, this is a different class of disaster movie. Yeah. Because to me, it kind of felt like it was starting from the, 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 the starting point of what if Godzilla actually emerged in 2016 not a like fantasy version of it, like, but no, Tokyo 2016. We're gonna focus on what the fuck would the government do responding to this, and so it's at a very fast pace. But they are going through every level of the minutia and the bureaucracy and everything you would see, and it's riveting. Yeah. And it shouldn't be riveting. This is not on paper. This movie sounds boring, and I recognize we're gonna say a lot of things in this episode that if you haven't seen the movie, you're gonna see how is that exciting. And it's because the filmmaking is just on fire. The yeah. acting is on fire. The writing is fantastic. But you're like, by, by ten minutes into this movie, I was on the edge of my seat. How did you feel? Yeah, no, I mean, the exact same way. I think, like, one of the major things, this is another comparison point, I think, with Fury Road, is the editing in this movie is masterful. Like, it's yes. unbelievable. Like, the, the, it's the, the, the editing and the, and the direction in terms of, like, the kind of the shots they choose and where they cut and how, like, the... Especially, like, once you have sort of, like... Godzilla becoming more present and more present and more present in the way that it will edit and cut between scenes in the boardroom and scenes of destruction on the street and that kind of stuff that it's there are moments where like where they will choose to cut and like show shots and stuff like that that are like holy fucking shit the editing in this movie is on like kind of like especially like for the genre is on a next level well I don't know if you saw this so the movie is directed by Hideaki Anno and Shinji Higuchi Anno is most famous for Neon Genesis Evangelion he's done a lot of other stuff and Shinji Higuchi has worked on Godzilla movies he's done special effects he also directed recently the Attack on Titan live action movies so he's got a special effects background but Hideaki Anno actually edited the movie himself that makes sense that's amazing yeah most directors are not that good at editing yeah exactly like yeah he has like you know he has that sort of like perfectionist Anno has that perfectionist sort of attitude that that makes yeah. a lot of sense to me that he would have also edited this movie but yeah like it it's it, it is like in those those the opening sections of the movie where you are like you can sort of see the spout of water and you see like the sort of the beginning of what's going to happen you get this is like oh shit's going down and then it cuts to you know the the boardrooms and like the prime minister's office and and there's almost like and it's something where early on in this movie, it's kind of hard to read what it's doing right away. Because there's like this sense of like, this is kind of like a weird satire of bureaucracy. Yes. And then it cuts to like the street and it cuts to like people drowning and shit. And it cuts to like, you know, images of like cars being shoved up the street by water. That looks way more like like news footage than it does footage like from a Godzilla movie. And it like cuts, to the, and then it will cut back to like... You know, in the in the boardroom or whatever, and they say, "Okay, we like something else has come up. Let's reconvene a meeting in the prime minister's office." And then they, everyone moves to the prime minister's office, and it's like, you know, there's all this stuff of like how the Japanese government seems so unprepared to deal with this, and there are so many different sort of talking heads all just trying to like push the blame onto other people so that their department doesn't get the issue and like that kind of stuff. That's sort of funny, and then it will cut to something that's incredibly dark, and you're like, "This is." horrifying like there's this instead of it just being funny it's like there's a sense of like there's all of this destruction going on out here and then the people that can do something about it are so removed and in some way so oblivious about like the actual situation and are like so worried about kind of the politics of the bureaucracy of the situation that's like they're not doing anything to help people which is one of the main arguments i think that the movie is making about like 
and, government response to disasters. And you're totally right. But even then, I don't think it's that reducible. Yeah. Like, for instance, there's no bad guy in this movie. No, There's no. no one who acts with malice. There's no straw man. There's no one who you are supposed to view as inhuman. Yeah. Like, everyone seems fundamentally good. Like, they want to do good. But, as you say, it's so much of this is about space and spatial aesthetics and things like that. Of showing the detachment, maybe. And that that desire to do good gets drowned out by detachment, you know. But, yeah. like... I want to say this up front. I have never seen a movie like this on any yeah. level. And I, I've seen a lot of movies, a lot of different eras and stuff. And, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about this. I think I might have said this, you know, last week or, or in some something I've written at one point. Like the original 1954 Godzilla very much emerges from a worldwide, like, cinematic movement to me. Where I think you can look at, like, Italian cinema at the same time. And, and movies like that where, um, like Italian neorealism. And it's, it's very much in that same kind of vein where it's about these ensembles and this choir of voices and all these people and these scenes of destruction and allegories for World War II that are maybe not even allegories and things yeah. like that. And, and that's one of the things I kind of love about that, that original Godzilla movie is it's very much part of a worldwide cinematic movement that was emerging post-World War II. I have nothing to compare Shin Godzilla to. And yeah. that's very weird to me. I don't know anything else that's kind of going on in the world because this seems so singular. It comes from the editing and the way it mixes tones, as you're saying, in that there's absolutely a satirical undercurrent to this. Like, I can very easily compare parts of this to, like, Dr. Strangelove or uh -huh. something. Um, not that much of the movie is laugh-out-loud funny, but it is satirical. Um, but then that satire is often juxtaposed with, as you say, scenes of horrific destruction... Or sometimes the satire just within a scene will glide seamlessly into something much more uh, earnest, you know? Yeah. Or it'll be happening at the same time. Because they do this one thing, for instance, where it's a disaster movie trope that when you cut from location to location, you put the text on screen of like, we're in the Pentagon, yeah. we're in the China Sea or whatever, you know, something like that. Um, and in this movie, and you can tell it's supposed to be slightly funny, but it's also supposed to be not funny. They have... Those text descriptions for every room, every location, like they will say like the elevator on the second floor yeah. and like the wall of text, if, especially funny in Japanese because you have just endless kanji. I don't know how yeah. even a Japanese native speaker is supposed to read that. And then especially when you're watching the English subtitle version, which obviously we were, like it's you have like all of that and then you have the English subtitles on top of it and then you have a person talking and then you have subtitles on top of that. Or you have a person speaking in English which has Japanese subtitles and then like they also have English subtitles on top of that. It's like there's like eight sets of fucking subtitles on this screen. This and is while, amazing. And while obviously the effect of kind of being overwhelmed is uh, enhanced if you're reading this in English... I think even if for a native yeah, Japanese no. speaker, it's supposed to be overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, it's just this fucking massive slap of text to the face, like, every time it cuts. And then there's even, I think, like, one of the best moments in the movie for, like, the kind of the funnier parts of it is... Uh, it's, and it's, like, comes after some of the darkest shit, but it's, like, kind of at the beginning of the third act where your main character sort of, like, kind of adopts a new title. And it gives him another introduction thing on the screen really quickly of, like, his name and, like, his new title or whatever. And it's, like... If we, when you've obviously you have been introduced to him in like the first scene of the movie, and like it, it sort of plays with that, and it plays with that sense of again, it's the that kind of like dry satire of bureaucracy of how like you know all these people have like their name and then like five different titles and like every single location is like this building on like this floor and this hallway and blah blah blah, and it's it is like so sort of official and proper all the time, and then it's juxtaposed to like the destruction and like the realness of the destruction and like the human cost that is out there and there's and again like it is something where like you said 
while it has that the satirical elements that it can be kind of funny that that are then kind of like you're kind of almost punished for finding them funny when it when it will like immediately cut to this really like horrifying sequence the movie then goes on to i think really effectively complicate all the characters to the point where like in the first couple of scenes the the prime minister seems kind of buffoonish and it's like oh he's just this ineffectual guy who's who's not really interested in actually operating government. He's just interested in being this figurehead and he's become the prime minister and that's all he cares about. And then as the movie goes on and things get more serious, he becomes very hands-on hands on, and he's like trying to do everything to help people. And even if he makes some mistakes, you can understand where he's coming from. And like there, there's a very human quality to all the characters that at first, like on, at face value, they seem very sort of like sort of cardboard cutouts and, and parodies of government officers and officials. But then when you get into it deeper, you find it like, no, these are all people who care about their jobs. They care about the people they're trying to protect, even if they aren't effective, even if they don't know how to sort of like wield these tools to actually save people, they want to. And like, that's really important. Well, I think part of it also is it does such a good job. The part of why the beginning is so in interesting to me is it's almost like this documentary kind of thing where it's like, okay, when there's a disaster, and obviously there's no Godzilla in the real world, but they just had, in 2011, the Tohoku earthquake and yeah. everything, and so they've had similar things. What has to go into responding to that? And this movie meticulously, piece by piece, and cutting very rapidly, but it's still meticulous, of showing us every inch of that minutia, and that alone is kind of thrilling because you're seeing... Even if every one of those people is the best person they can be at every moment, there's so much to do. Like, there's no system that will attack this perfectly. Yeah. And so I think the movie, and we'll get into it, has a, this has a pretty grand political statement it makes by the end of this film. Yeah. That is audacious, to say the least. But it's not attacking anyone. It's not saying, like, our Japanese government is awful. And it's not saying the people who responded to real-world events we're mimicking are awful. It's not saying any of that. But I think it's partially critiquing, you know, systems, but also just showing, like, this is shit that just human beings on a fundamental level are not prepared for. Yeah. Whether it's Godzilla or whether it's a wave or a tsunami or something. And I think that alone is very interesting and gets you invested right off the bat. Because yeah. you're like, you think about it yourself, like, if I were one of these people, how the fuck would I respond to fucking Godzilla, you know, stampeding through the streets? Yeah, especially when, like, you are just, like, the, like, sub-minister of some, like, sort of biological research branch. It's like, well, I can't, I, like, I can kind of say a bit of my piece, but, like, none of these people can handle everything. You know, we all, like, they all kind of have to shove it off on the prime minister at some point. But, like, the only thing he has the authority to do is say, like... Yes or no. He can't really do anything else. Right. So that all is just very interesting. Okay, so there's so much in this movie. Yeah, this, I don't even is, like, this is like a hard movie kind of to talk about just because it is so layered and complicated. But I mean, this movie must have, like just on a scripting level, I would love to see how long the script of this movie is. Yeah. Because it must be like two or three times the length of a script for a similar length movie. It's about two yeah. hours. But I assume it's hundreds of pages just with the amount of dialogue and cuts and locations. And just the, you know, scripts have the cut to exterior. All of that has to be insane, you know, of like, how do you location scout this movie? Yeah. But anyway, I mean, do you want to continue kind of talking about the political side of things? And we can hit Godzilla himself a little later. Sure. Okay. Because uh, let's back up with some Japanese history. A lot of what right. this movie is about is, you know, post-war Japan... There's a great line in this yeah. movie at some point where someone says, 
something about their post-war constitution and says, when will that end? And someone says, well, post-war is forever. Yeah. And that's a great line that I think reflects some of the Japanese psyche right now and, and the, the cultural conversation, which is after World War II, Japan did some bad things. Yeah. And, and, you know, other people did bad things to Japan. But either way, once they were defeated and surrendered unconditionally, the Allied forces led by the United States occupied Japan for a number of years and in that process helped draft Japan's new constitution, which has not been amended since, ni- since the year it was enacted, yeah. which is the, the late 40s, I think 19, maybe 1946. Um, but anyway, so in that constitution, one of the things it says is that Japan can have a military presence but cannot wage or declare war. Yeah, so, so what that means is in like real-world terms... Japan does have what is effectively like the National Guard. It's called the Japanese Self-Defense Force. And so they have an armed force, but they cannot, like, declare an armed action. They cannot invade other countries. Like, there's some sort of stuff going on right now where, like, there's an arguable interpretation of that article that says that they can help allies in armed uh, interventions and stuff like that, which is sort of controversial. But in general, like... Japan is a country that, like, in a military sense, by its constitution, is completely neutered. Like, it can't attack other countries at all. And I think part of the argument of Shin Godzilla and part of the national discussion in Japan right now, because what you're referring to is the the article of the Constitution, you know, that is being reinterpreted to say now, okay, maybe we can have military intervention with with our friends, not our friends, but our allies, but still can't declare war. So, you know, what Shin Godzilla, part of its argument is, it's been 60-some years since that constitution was drafted. Japan was cut off at the knees, basically, by that constitution. And Japan has prospered pretty well since then and had a good rebuilding of its society. But there are these entrenched problems that have started to grow because of that allied constitution. And that Japan has sort of been, not sheltered, but like cut off in some way. Yeah, and and like... It feels like this movie, like the the arguments that this movie makes with like the sort of really complicated relationship Japan has with America is one of my, like the most fascinating parts of it is like, there's a sense of like, there is a sort of give and take relationship and like part of that is legitimate and like Japan does benefit a lot from its relationship with the United States. But at the same time, like it is a sort of coddling relationship, you know, and like, and America doesn't. In this movie, at least, like, America doesn't really take Japan seriously that right. much and, like, is not too concerned with, like, Japan's autonomy and and interferes in, like, you know, that, that gets pretty severe once the nuclear weapon discussion starts happening in, in the second act and all that stuff. But, like, there's there's this really complex relationship Japan has with the rest of the world, partially because of the way that its constitution is drafted and the way that article is drafted. Right. And, you know, one of the big things going on in Japan right now culturally is this debate over nationalism. And nationalism, of course, is a huge thing in the world right now. We're experiencing it heavily in America. Britain just shot itself in the head earlier this year over nationalism. Um, But in Japan, it's a little different. It's not like we want to take over the world nationalism, but it's a question of how much pride should we have as Japanese in our military, in our forces, in these things of declaring ourselves a country again and a lot of people who still have sort of this guilt from the period of the war and saying, no, Japan being pacifist is a good thing about Japan, and we should maintain that. If you want another sort of reference of this in terms of sort of modern Japanese film, and there's a good connection with Hideaki Anno here, is Hayao Miyazaki's last movie, The Wind right. Rises, which Anno voices the main character in that, um, is, is it's about World War II, but I think it is obliquely also about the modern nationalist conversation in that um, Miyazaki is a huge pacifist. 
he does not like military stuff at all, even though he loves drawing military planes and stuff. It's one of his contradictions. And that movie is sort of about this line between, um, you know, having an identity and the, the harsh realities of the world. Um, so it is something that is in the ether in Japan right now. And so this becomes interesting and complicated in Shin Godzilla almost from right off the bat because one of the things they have to question, which has, I don't know if any Godzilla movie has ever gone into this, they couldn't order the army in. Yeah, easily. Uh-huh. And like that's something that, that was is one just... of the most fascinating parts of the movie, where it was like because that's it's every single Godzilla movie has the scene where like the the army comes in and like they always have these weird fucking laser cannons that I don't know where the Japanese military got these laser cannons <laughs> in this fucking universe, but they are the same ones in all these movies because they're all Toho, but. Like, the, but the Japanese military comes in and, like, shoots at Godzilla for a while and, like, maybe tries to, tr- like, wrap him up in, like, fucking electric wires or something and whatever weird scheme they've come up with this time. And they always fail because, of course they do, because Godzilla's going to go fight another monster. But, yeah, like, and it had never even occurred to me that's like, that's right. Like, you couldn't just do this. Like, you have to go through, like, Japan would have to go through all these processes to sort of, like, figure out, can we just justifiably like use military force here based on our constitution like is this constitutionally legal in our country to actually use force in this way it's like why how do you label godzilla is godzilla is it a natural disaster is it it's a it's an exotic creature is it an enemy force like what is this thing and that's one of those moments where i think the movie is sympathetic to the people it's showing is like when the prime minister is figuring out okay, I want to use military force against this thing, but how do I? And so they get into this whole discussion. And I love that scene because it's like, they didn't draft that constitution. Yeah, no. It's not their fault, but they have to figure out and like the specific way they get around that is so interesting and so fascinating. And it's, it's just one of those things where this is true in a lot of ways. If you, When you dive down into the minutia enough and if you do it in a clear enough way, it can be thrilling in its own way. And that's one of those scenes I found very thrilling in a weird sense of yeah. like not calling in the military, but how do we call in the military? Yeah. And so much of this movie is as much about the how as it is the event itself, which is so interesting to me. Yeah. So then, I mean, from, yeah. I'll say this. I think we could just go step by step, right, but right. off what we were talking about, really in broad strokes, what this movie is about allegorically, politically is it is Japan standing up again and basically finding its own national identity through this horrible crisis of Godzilla. And that by the end of the movie, you know, um, all this stuff has happened where a bunch of the power structure has been destroyed by Godzilla. So much of the country is decimated. And um, basically these new structures in the, in the government are popping up with the main character, Yaguchi, who has his own sort of uh, task force he's assembling. And he's kind of rethinking how they're going to do bureaucracy and how they're going to have a power structure. And so the whole movie is step by step. You're watching Japan reawaken. And I think it's fascinating because, again, I don't think it's, irre- it's, I don't think it's reducible to something like this is purely good. I think there are disturbing steps along the way yeah. that Anno and, and the director Higuchi um, want you to think about of is it good for Japan to awaken in this way? But really what happens is that Godzilla is the literal monster that awakens. But along the way, Japan as a nation awakens over the course of the film, too, to by the end where, you know, the final scene where they defeat Godzilla, what they do to defeat him is that they use their own infrastructure, yeah. their own transportation. It's one of the most striking uh, sequences visually I have ever seen in terms of symbolism, where they are literally bringing down Tokyo buildings on Godzilla rather than allowing foreign influence because they're saying, no, fuck it, we are bringing this guy down. He is our problem. We are dealing with it. And I think it's meant to be 
partially disturbing, partially inspiring. It's meant to have all these conversations come out to it, but the arc of the movie ultimately is um, Godzilla's awakened and we are too. And it's yeah. a really interesting political thing to have in this movie. Yeah, and it, it's something else where, like, we talk about that in sequence of the movie where them defeating Godzilla using the infrastructure of Japan and everything. It's one of my favorite things the movie sort of sets up in its arguments sort of about, like, Japanese nationalism and, like, like what does Japanese nationalism look like? Like, is it good? And one of the things I like is that there's a sense of, like, Japanese nationalism is not going to be, like, is not like American nationalism. Like, we should not take pride in, like, dropping bombs. Like, like and that's, like, not, like, you know, that's not what we are. Like, what we are is, like, smart. It's, like, so, like, everything that, like, you have Yaguchi and his team doing is, like, all these scientists bringing all these people from these different fields together and working on, like, an even level, cutting out, which is another, like, sort of thing, I think, like, an issue it brings up with Japanese society is so much of the hierarchy of, like, the Japanese government and stuff like that also comes from the culture that's, like, buried into the language and everything of how hierarchy works and how, like, you know, older people and the people who are more experienced, like, can be so entrenched in, like, their respected positions. And that's something that so permeates the culture that it can prevent something where you can have, like, all these people from different departments and different fields and everything with different levels of experience working on an even level and being able to work in, like, a cooperative way. That alone is one of the most radical things the movie suggests is that Yaguchi sets it up and he says, this is a flat power structure. Yeah. You know, you report to me, but we all have an equal say. Yeah. And that alone is, if, you know, Japanese culture, kind of a radical thing to suggest. Yeah, and, and it's something where... So it's, you have that flat power structure, and it's that flat power structure around like just all these people trying to solve problems intellectually and not relying on military force. So they're just trying to figure out what is Godzilla on like a biological level. What can we do to stop him? We can manufacture this compound that will effectively like coagulate his blood and all this stuff. And like that's the the whole sort of subplot running through the movie that then like really becomes the main plot in Act Three is like Yaguchi's plan, the Yaguchi plan of like them trying to figure all this stuff out. And then you have the whole in sort of climactic sequence of the movie where they figure out how to do this blood coagulant stuff, which is actually very similar to what they do in Godzilla versus Space Godzilla. It's a little <laughs> bit of trivia for you. It they use it and play it off very differently, but it's a similar idea. And but so they have that plan, and then they sort of enact the plan. And how they enact it is they don't just go in with fighter jets and like fucking try to fire blood coagulant like missiles or something at Godzilla or. Ever they instead it's like no we're going to wrap Godzilla in Tokyo we're going to drop buildings on him we're going to sh like my one of my favorite sequences of the whole movie is where they just shoot up subway trains up into Godzilla and blow them all up which is like like it's just like oh that's a cool idea but the way they do it where it's like it's not like one or two it's like six subway trains and it's not like one bomb it's like a hundred bombs in all of them it's just, it's just like this massive explosion. And they just sort of wrap Godzilla up and then they get all these like big like sort of like fire station like cherry picker looking things to go up and like they just like dump blood coagulant into his mouth. It's like there's something about that that I love so much is that like what they are trying to take pride in is not the military. That it's like you can be effective and powerful and take pride in these things without it being a military force. It's about our intelligence. It's about our like ability to cooperate. It's about the, the brilliant infrastructure that we have built which is also playing Persona 5, which is set in Tokyo. You have to deal with, like, subway trains and all this stuff, and there's kind of a weird kinship with that for me, like, having, like, playing that game and watching this movie at the same time. And, like, all of that, I thought, like, that's 
such a compelling sort of vision, you know, of what a like form of nationalism can a- be. Absolutely, and that's what I mean when I say there's sort of disturbing things about the the last part of the movie, and there's such inspiring things. And the movie doesn't want you to get your jollies off on the destruction. It's yeah. not saying, "Look how cool we are because we can blow shit up." It's look how much we did in working together and having all this intelligence and using our intelligence to pull off this amazing thing and defend our city using us, using our our minds and our, you know, it's not that the explosions are cool, it's that they found a way to put it all together and as you say, wrap him in Tokyo because that's what they've got and that's what they're going to do. No, it is such a more nuanced discussion of nationalism than you hear anywhere in the world, frankly. So... Yeah, all of that is fascinating, and I think it makes for such a great arc for the movie. And then, of course, there is this extra wrinkle that's very intelligent they add, where, um, you know, second act into the third act, what happens is Godzilla is sort of frozen for a while, and they know he's going to wake up, and the rest of the world, this UN council, has basically decided they're going to take over. And Japan's, like, almost too stupid to figure it out. Right. Um, and and Japan, again, they, they find there, there winds up being a second prime minister in the movie, and he kind of grudgingly allows this to go forward. But even then, you're not saying he's a bad guy. It's like, yeah. well, what else can he kind of do against the entire world? Yeah. And it's tough, but the rest of the world decides they're going to drop a nuke on Godzilla. And of course, and that's such a bold allegory. <laughs> I can't yeah. believe they did it. But the idea is... The only way to save Japan is to nuke Japan for a third time. Yeah, and like nuke Tokyo specifically because Godzilla is in the heart of Tokyo when he freezes. Right, and they say they're going to get everyone out. They're going to help rebuild all this stuff, but they're still going to nuke Tokyo. And you can understand why this is not acceptable to the Japanese people in the movie. Because it's like, come hell or high water, we have to find a way to defeat this guy without letting that happen to us again. Yeah. You know, and it's such a great echo, not only of... Of World War II and of history, but also of Godzilla history, of yeah. Godzilla the first movie and the history of Godzilla f- since then. It's such a powerful image and I think it adds so much weight to what they attempt in the last act of this movie and the pride of what they come up with and figuring out we found a way around this without nuclear bombs. Yeah, It's almost like the opposite of God- the end of Godzilla 1 where the only way to defeat Godzilla is to create another mega weapon. And this one, they find a way to defeat him that's much more positive and hopeful than that. Yeah. Yeah, but like that, the the nuke stuff, like that was one of the sort of the most shocking parts of the movie to me because it's also something where, like, you've seen that kind of stuff in other movies like this of where like, oh, the aliens have invaded, so we need to use the nukes to destroy it. It's like we can't use a nuke over Tokyo or, or over New York or whatever, you know. And you see that, but like that takes on a totally different tone when you're talking about Japan and when you're talking about Japan in. This Godzilla movie where, like, you know, Shin Godzilla, we could talk about this more later, is, like, 100% in conversation with the original Godzilla movie. And, like, from second one, like, the title, like, the font treatment on the title is the exact same. And, like, music cues are the same. So it's very conscious about the legacy of that original movie and is interested in the legacy of that original movie way more so than any of the ones in between. But when you when they bring up the nuke stuff, and it's particularly there's this one one like the most powerful sequences in the movie to me is I think it's when they're telling Yaguchi about it for the first time, and they basically says like they're going to drop a nuke on on Japan, and then it just does this flash cut to an image of the Hiroshima Dome from after yeah. the dropping of the bomb. It's like holy fucking shit, that hit me really hard because that's also that's like the only time in that entire movie that does that. Because it's like, obviously, it's like this insane sort of like non-diegetic cut where it's like, you know, that like that didn't happen in the diegesis of the movie. That didn't occur in the reality of the film. That was just like, 
this it's just this like sharp slap in the face of like yes that remember this yeah that fucking happened it's like the most iconic image from after that of like the one building left standing that's still standing today it's like holy fucking shit that hit me really hard yes and it's such a a weight to put on the characters and to put on the story of the movie and it's so audacious and it's so brilliant yeah and i mean this is another reaction i've had to the movie in our lifetimes, Hollywood mainstream films, like a big movie you'd go see in any theater, just like Shin Godzilla is a mainstream movie for Japan, released everywhere, yeah. it's their highest grossing movie of the year. In our lifetimes, you and me, Hollywood has never made a movie this politically engaged with American culture. No. Yeah. No. I, I think you can go back outside of our lifetimes and maybe find some examples of mainstream films that are somewhat on that level, certainly from Cold War era and some of that stuff. Um, but no, it's just like, you don't get this where it's like, this is a movie that is boldly imagining a new future for its nation and a different way things could be arranged and commenting on just the basic fundamentals of what its government and society is built on in a monster movie, which, uh, not that monster movies are inherently silly, but they carry that, you know, with them of people kind of expect that. And that's not what it's giving you. And that alone is just so crazy to me. And I think it speaks to something in just Japanese cinema that endures to this day that I think is why it's one of the world's best cinemas is that they're willing to have those conversations with their own culture and government in a way that a lot of other cinemas of the world just do not, including and especially American cinema. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine a movie like, like, you know, Captain America the Winter Soldier had some things to say about, like, surveillance and stuff. What if it just full-on said, like, fuck the entire government, it's completely broken, we have to tear it down, showed the president dying or something. Like, how crazy would that be? Yeah. We would have no vocabulary to describe a movie like that. Yeah. You know? Like, it's like, and then also, like, have that be, like, that movie, like, made four years after, like, Hurricane Katrina hit. And be an allegory for Hurricane Katrina in some ways, like... Like, this movie is so sort of bold on so many levels in terms of the subject material it tackles and how just head-on it tackles it. That's like, it's not being coy. Like, it's not trying to hide what it's saying. It's like, no, like, this is a problem. Like, we need to, like, deal with this. We need to talk about this. Yeah, I mean, we talked about last week that one of the most amazing things about the original Godzilla in just the history of cinema is that usually movies don't, relate to reality that clearly that if there's a natural disaster or a man-made disaster or whatever the way artists in film tend to deal with it is through an allegory that's very removed or is talking about someone else's tragedy or something um if you look at like 9-11 films today or we mentioned that that bollywood example and things like that and no shin godzilla is just like fuck it the earthquake was five years ago we're gonna have that conversation right now on film and we're not gonna hide what we're talking about because so many of the images of destruction in this movie are so powerful. They are not, like the original Godzilla, it's not a cartoony version of it. Yeah. Even when it's, you know, the, the, the kind of first form of Godzilla in this movie, which looks really crazy, stomping through the streets. What that Godzilla is doing, if you've seen any images from that earthquake, they're not fucking around. This, yeah. That will resonate with audiences in Japan in a way that is probably painful, but necessary. Yeah. And that's amazing to me, and it's commendable. Yeah, it is, it is something where it's, like, another part of, like, all that stuff is, like, 
thought that it was interesting the way they introduced Godzilla and all that stuff is he's sort of evolves over the course of the beginning of the movie so he's very small and sort of weird looking and then eventually he turns into the Godzilla you recognize and a part of that it's like I thought because again I think this movie is much more directly an allegory for the 2011 disaster than like the original Godzilla is not an allegory for nuclear weapons he never has been I hate that interpretation of that movie because it's like the like in the context of that movie, America had already dropped bombs on Japan. Like, that is directly addressed. Like, that happened in the context we of... We talked like, about this last week, yeah. Yeah, of the, the 1954 movie. If that happened, you can't have that be an allegory for that thing because that thing already happened in the movie. Like, that's not how that works. Right. Here, they never make direct reference to the disasters of 2011. But, like, the way that Godzilla, like, particularly the way, like, it's a giant... Splash of water is how he first appears, and then it's like the the underwater tunnels start collapsing, and then water starts rushing up the streets and pushing up the cars and all that stuff, and then eventually Godzilla actually emerges, and then it's part of the government's inability to respond quickly enough causes the problem, causes Godzilla to mutate, to get worse and worse and worse in the way that with that disaster, when it eventually started hitting the nuclear reactors, the disaster got worse and worse and worse because you couldn't respond quick enough. And like, that's... Right. In, in simple terms, the tsunami is no one's fault. Fukushima is someone's fault. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so it's and so like that, like if the fact that it's just like because again, it's an allegory, but it's not trying to be. It's it's like you know most kind of good allegories is they're not trying to hide it. It's like the if you did take like a high school literature class and you start learning about allegories that tell you about like young Goodman Brown is the story everyone reads for like this is what an allegory is and the reason you read that one is because it's about like this young Puritan man whose wife is named Faith and like that's all you need to know about like how subtle they're trying to be with the allegory and this is kind of like that it's like it's not like it's being like oh like yeah we seeded some secret stuff in here and there's like this like very vague symbolisms like no like, this is imagery that could just, if you, like, cut out the Godzilla part of it, it would just be imagery, like, news footage from that disaster. Like, this is, like, the radioactivity of it. Like, the way that it evolves over the course of the problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Like, that's just so basic. It's not trying to hide it at all. So should we talk about Godzilla? Let's talk about Godzilla in this Godzilla movie. Holy fuck. Yeah. So, first off, as you say, he does evolve. And his first form, I thought, I'm so glad they kept that out of the trailers. Because yeah. it was such a re great reveal where you're running. Is that supposed to be Godzilla? Is it another monster? Because he basically, what I, for one, I, I don't, I'm not sure special effects wise, and we can speculate on this later, how they did the full form of Godzilla. It's mostly CG. Yeah, which yeah. Is, I can't it's believe. Unbelievable. That. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll talk about, about that, that later. But the first form, really, I don't know if it's CG or not, it's meant to look more like a guy in a suit, I think, yeah. or something. And his head specifically. To me, it looked like a kabuki mask. Like it's sure, yeah, got the like big it has eyes, like big sort of fish-looking eyes. Yeah, but it's supposed to look kind of inhuman and alien. Like you know what Godzilla is, but this thing is kind of mildly funny, but more to me, just kind of terrifying. That it's it it's grotesque because so... it's like it's this incomplete yeah. creature. Like it, it's the proportions are all off, and it has these big, weird, like like gills. That are more like just kind of gaping wounds in its neck that is just dripping blood constantly. Like yeah. it's something where like all like the design of this Godzilla and like how it works in this movie is so Anno. It's so <laughs> Neon Genesis Evangelion and that like and that kind of whole genre of like almost kind of like Japanese Lovecraft horror in a way yes. of like these these like unfathomable inhuman creatures that like kind of have this incomprehensible sort of like 
maliciousness to them that like they exist to sort of just kind of destroy humanity and you can't understand them in any way and that's like that's really how Godzilla operates in this movie and I like that transition like you said of like the first time you see him you're like is that what the fuck is that thing it's like it's just it's like kind of half fish half lizard like you can see some Godzilla in it but like what the fuck? Like, because it's got his spines. Yeah. But it, his face is so different. And the way they introduce it, you talked about it's kind of the violent cutting earlier. The first cut to this Godzilla is a violent cut where it's just, you see some of him and then it's just cut and his face is on the entire screen. Yeah, like and, just right in the middle of the image in the street. And in the theater, big screen, it's like gasps. Like, what yeah. the fuck are we looking at? And it's it's great. Yeah. No, I think the way I described Godzilla after our screening, Sean, was anime as fuck. Yeah. And that's pretty much a good way to describe a lot of this movie yeah. when Godzilla's on screen it is anime as fuck yeah definitely so but that's first form Godzilla and I love the whole idea of him kind of evolving and he retreats into the sea but he's already started to kind of get bigger and I mean this movie is graphic at points with yeah. Godzilla like tearing his skin apart and then blood coming out and you can tell the that the, he's starting to cook again and most of the evolution takes place off screen but even then some of that is just like terrifying to behold you yeah. know yeah, it is something where I just love that sort of take with Godzilla because it makes him feel so alien and unknown. Where it's like, you know, where I've seen fucking 28 of these movies with this guy. Like, I, I know Godzilla. I have this attachment to this character even when he's in, like, the more serious kind of scary movies. Like, I, I know Godzilla. I recognize Godzilla. I love Godzilla. How could I not? But when you, but like by introducing him in this very completely non-Godzilla-like state and form, which is like none of the other Godzilla movies have done this. Like there's Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah does something slightly similar with some time travel stuff. But even then Godzilla kind of looks like a T-Rex in his sort of primitive state. Not this like weird fish lizard creature thing with this bleeding all over the place. And so by starting you off on that foot, and again, like like you said, with having no footage of that in the trailer, so it's completely unexpected, like, it, th- it threw me completely off my game of, like, I don't know what to expect from this anymore. Like, right. I don't know what this creature is, because it's like, it, when it turns into Godzilla, it looks like Godzilla, it sounds like Godzilla, but it doesn't behave like Godzilla anymore. It's not, like, it is a totally different kind of creature than in any of the other Godzilla movies. I think one of the ways I phrased it in my review is, whether you've seen all 29 movies like you have, or whether you've seen a couple, or whether you've seen none, just the world has a cultural connection to Godzilla. You know yeah. what Godzilla looks like. He is one of the most ubiquitous characters in fiction. Yeah. You know, you know visually Godzilla... And we also know that oftentimes Godzilla is kind of a fun, funny dude. You yeah, know? he does little dances and he flies through the air with his atomic breath. And it's, the gifts. And you know, for a long time, Toho has not tried to make Godzilla that scary. Even yeah. on something like we talked last week, the the best of the Millennium series, which is the uh, destroy. God, giant monsters all out of attack. attack. Very good. Godzilla's pretty scary in that one. Yeah. But it's not supposed to be like a horror movie. Yeah. Right? Like, and then also, like, those movies never really, like, took hold over here either way. So, like, right. in America in particular, the image of Godzilla is definitely still the goofy Godzilla. So, but my point is, like, no matter what your uh, familiarity with Godzilla, Shin Godzilla feels like brand new to you. It's yeah. it, You will fear this monster again. You will be... In awe of this monster again. And it's not just because of that first form stuff. But that certainly goes a long way. It's it's a palate cleanser. It's like the yeah. ginger between sushi. This is what you have to do to get ready for the new form. Yeah. And it's, no, it's brilliant. And when that new form comes out, holy crap. I yeah. like this Godzilla. Yeah, I fucking... 
Man, so like, like, let's talk about the effects first because I think like that's one uh, of the most fascinating parts. Like, I really hope there's some in-depth, like, special feature stuff on the Blu-ray because I really want to see what they did with all the effects in this movie. Because I'd read that it's, um, you know, it's got CG elements. They did maquettes. They did animatronics. They had a guy in a mocap suit. They had all these different things, and I'm sure it's a mixture of lots of different things. Yeah. But I'll say this, I don't know the last movie I can point to where I'm actively like, I don't know how they did the special effects. Because yeah. in America, it's just, it's CG, whatever. Mm-hmm. And even then, you know, you can spot it. But like, there are some shots of Godzilla in this where it's very clear to me that has to be CG just because the stuff they have him doing, you can't do without that. Yeah. Like when he's stretching his mouth and things like that has to be CG. But then there are shots where it's like a close-up or it's just his body or something and it looks... Just as tangible and real to me as any of the suits I've seen in the other movies. Is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah, no, it is something where, like, I, I think it's something where it's such an interesting approach that that is so fascinating to sort of like contrast with the way the 2014 Godzilla movie handled it. Because obviously, this movie does not have anywhere near the budget of like a Hollywood production. Like, no. it's not, it doesn't have that kind of like time and money behind it. It's like that's like the Japanese movie market doesn't work that way. But they managed to, by taking what seems like a philosophical approach to the CG, managed to create an effect that I think is way better than, like, I think that the effects of the 2014 Godzilla movie are fine, but, like, I like the ones in this way better. And, like, especially, like, like the Cloverfield monster and the Mutos from the 2014 Godzilla movie. Like, the effects of Godzilla in this are way better than those that we produced over here. And I think a lot, a lot of that is because they didn't try to make it look like an animal. They tried to make it look like a dude in a fucking suit. Yes. They, like, tried to... So, like, Godzilla has this physical presence in the scene because they're not trying to make him all smooth and stuff like that. Like, it's Godzilla's kind of awkward and clumsy in some ways in the way it moves and the way it exists in that environment because they tried to, in a lot of ways, model it off of a very suit-like appearance, which is why... You can look at those trailers the way that we did when we first saw the trailers and be like, oh, that must be a suit because it looks like a Godzilla suit. It looks like it physically exists in that environment because they weren't trying to make it look like in like actual Godzilla. They were trying to make it look like a guy playing Godzilla. Yes, but with all the CGI enhancements and stuff that you... They couldn't have made this movie with a guy. Yeah, with a suit. like it's very clear that because I've I've read stuff that like they they wanted to do a suit and they tried suit stuff and prototype that when they were first making the movie. But it's obvious once you see it that yes, there's stuff they do with Godzilla in this movie that like the suit would not have worked. You wouldn't have been able to do a lot of the sort of more spectacular sequences they wanted to do with a suit. So as a Godzilla fan, yeah, love the suit. Are you okay with this? I'm totally fine with this. Like, as long as, like, if it's justified and I feel like it's totally justified and it's executed on such a high level that, like, again, like I want to see, like, I want to see a documentary or something about how these effects were made because it's just, it amazes me that those effects are so good given the resources they have compared to Hollywood studios that have been doing stuff with giant monsters every now and then. But they always come across, like, even in movies that I like a lot, like that 2014 Godzilla movie or Pacific Rim, the monsters look digital and fake. And I can accept that at a certain point because whatever, it's a movie that special effects, like, special effects will look fake at some point. But they manage to, with their methodology, make Godzilla feel like it physically exists in the scene for most of the movie to make. And he's fucking terrifying. And he is unbelievably terrifying. I mean, this is what happens. I think, 
uh, it's so important that they had these two specific directors of Hideaki Anno, who is a great writer. He obviously is a very good editor, all this stuff, good with actors. And he's got this brilliant kind of design philosophy. And then you have Shinji Higuchi, who is a special effects wizard. He's been doing this his whole life. He's directed movies like those Attack on Titan films that are special effects extravaganzas. Yeah. And so you have this vision and this ability to realize it. And it's, it's a really perfect combination of directors there. And because you have a Godzilla who looks absolutely real and absolutely nightmare fuel, you know, like, and just even in the shots, like you've seen from the trailers, once you see them in context, I mean, I already thought they were imposing in the trailers, but then in context, it's like the first time. And again, it's a hard cut when you have the new Godzilla on land, you've probably seen this shot of him kind of walking towards out of the ocean and people running. That's terrifying alone, but then they go crazy with it. Oh, God, like, yeah, like, if we want to talk about the end of Act 2 of this movie, like, holy fucking shit, when Godzilla gets real in this movie, Godzilla gets real in this movie. And I mean, before you even get there, just his his trampling feels so much more raw than in other Godzilla movies. Like, honestly, back to stuff from, like, the 1954, where when he stomps on a building or something, you kind of feel those walls come down. There's a lot of that here where there is some massive destruction in this movie, and you are supposed to sense and feel it, and it is terrifying. Yeah, there's just such a physicality to it and everything, which is so important for these special effects. And it's one of the, like... The shot is in the trailer, and it's one of my favorite shots in the movie. Is it's one of those when Godzilla is like full Godzilla, and he's just sort of like stomping his way towards Tokyo. And there's just a shot that's sort of like you can tell it's sort of a POV shot, though you don't see any of the people of like this car driving by, and it's just like upward shot, kind of like through the window of Godzilla as he's kind of stepping over this bridge. And it's like there's a lot of really great shots like that that again are like you could not have done that shot with a suit or like. Like, it would have been way harder and probably looked really goofy because you'd have to done, like, weird green screen stuff and stuff like that to try to get that to work. Whereas, like, with the CG sh- version, like, obviously you just do the CG. And so, like, that kind of, using that perspective for Godzilla is so effective. It's the the best part of the Gareth Edwards movie is the, is the way that he shot Godzilla from, like, a ground perspective for most of the film. And I think there's something about those shots in this movie, like, establishing Godzilla as a physical presence so firmly before... Like, stuff starts getting crazier and crazier and crazier, you know? Right. No, absolutely. And as you say, when Godzilla lets loose, because what happens is it kind of... You have this whole day where Godzilla is trampling through... He's heading towards Tokyo, which is much more inland than certain cities. Yeah. And so he's getting to Tokyo, and the government is freaking the fuck out, as they should be. Because that's the other thing, is that beforehand, all the government workers that we're seeing are in Tokyo, so they're away from the action, because this is all happening in other more coastal cities. And now he's headed right there, and they have to figure out basically how to evacuate fucking Tokyo, which is a big city, you know? Um, And so that's terrifying on its own, but basically day turns into night, and then once night arrives, and they start trying to engage him... Shit gets real, and they and it's they even set you up where maybe the military is going to have more of an effect than they usually do in a Godzilla movie because they're doing a good job. Yeah. They're planting their bombs, and then America kind of gets involved, and they're dropping some bombs with their fighter jets, and Godzilla starts to bleed, and then he gets angry. Yeah, it's, you don't want Godzilla to be angry. Like if you think the Hulk is terrifying when he's angry, like this guy is way bigger and way greener than the Hulk is. And uh, yeah, I don't I. I can't quite even believe what we saw after that, Sean, is a real thing I saw in a movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like, mean, the abilities they give Godzilla. Like, just, maybe just try to describe some of this, Okay, I guess. yeah. So, basically, what happens is they, the military tries to stop Godzilla, and for a long time, it's 
like impossible. If there's like there's a really great long sequence of like where the military literally just shoots every single bullet they have at Godzilla. And it's just yeah. like this like five minute sequence of them just shooting shit at Godzilla and he's just walking and like they can't do anything to stop him. And then he gets to Tokyo, it turns to night, they they keep on going, America comes in, America drops its bombs and hits Godzilla and that causes Godzilla to bleed. Then Godzilla basically kind of like bends to the ground, opens his mouth, then his mouth just sort of rips apart and like just this like massive just like gaping maw and and you sort of start realizing kind of what's probably about to happen and then he shoots fire out of his mouth and when he shoots fire out of his mouth it looks like fire and it just hits the ground of Tokyo because he's bending down and it just fucking spreads all over the place like shoots down all the streets and basically like blows up five city blocks of Tokyo and then the fire coming out of his mouth starts getting slowly more condensed and condensed and condensed until it's just basically this solid fucking beam that then cuts through straight through all these buildings in Tokyo and so he's and it like it's just like a basically a laser beam that goes as far as the frame and it's just like straight just clean slices through through skyscrapers and then they drop more bombs on Godzilla and then Godzilla's spines start lighting up. And it's like, okay, yeah, like he's firing his laser breath. Like, his spines light up. And then he kind of bends down again. And then lasers start shooting out of his spines and destroying the bombs that are coming down and destroying the fighters that are trying to drop the bombs. And then he just basically destroys, like, half of Tokyo. Oh, holy crap. Yeah. And you're actually forgetting one step in that, which is that when he starts bending down and opening his mouth, before the fire comes out, it's like this atomic breath yeah. of like like just straight up like nuclear waste going yeah, it's everywhere. Like, like and smoke flooding or something. Yeah, yeah, like just flooding the streets and then it turns into fire. And what makes it such a mind fuck is that they know that we know that we're waiting for the fire breath. Yeah. We know Godzilla can breathe fire. When's he gonna do it? When are the spines gonna light up? And when it does, we are not prepared for exactly what they're going to do with it, which is yeah. that he, like, mutates his face, atomic breath, then the fire. And the fire isn't just one beam. It's just, like, literally, like, all of Tokyo just gets engulfed. And then, as you say, the beam, and it's cutting down buildings. And it's just, like, the scale of the destruction the movie is imagining is so horrific. It's just, like, those images are unbelievable. Yeah, and it's, and it's just the sense of, like, again... It's it's that Anno like aesthetic, or it's like like it's not just Anno. Like there's a lot of stuff. I mean, Attack on Titan, the anime series in particular, like also kind of does this. Of like it's this very particular kind of horror that again you can liken it to like Lovecraftian horror. And there's like I've never quite seen anything like it. And I don't even know what to call it, and I don't know if there is a genre name for it. But it is that sense of like these alien things. That you cannot understand in any way that exists in a on like a level you can't quite grasp, and but all you know is that they're going to destroy you. And this like that's like all of Godzilla's behavior in this movie is you have all these like behavioral scientists and biologists and stuff looking at what Godzilla's doing is like we don't know what the fuck like it's not eating like it's not this does not seem to be following some sort of objective. It's not even really responding to its environment. It's just heading towards Tokyo. There's nothing here. Like, you know, it's not... In most Godzilla movies, Godzilla behaves like an animal. He's, like, he feeds off of radioactivity or something. It was like he, he has clear objectives. He's protecting his territory. Here, Godzilla doesn't have anything like that. And Godzilla even exists in a way on, like, on a biological level that people don't really understand, where it's like... 
Godzilla is this self-evolving creature that, like, Godzilla doesn't even need to reproduce. It's not even that he self-reproduces. It's that Godzilla evolves as, like, a contiguous entity in and of itself in, like, the fiction of this movie. So it's like everything about what Godzilla is is alien, unknown, foreign, bizarre, grotesque, and that's what makes him so unsettling. And so when... And that's what gives him the ability to surprise the audience so that when you have that sequence where it's like you kind of think you can expect what Godzilla is going to do and then he does not do what Godzilla normally does and it's insane like it's horrifying because because like the second they managed to do something to kind of hurt Godzilla Godzilla got like 5000 more power times more powerful than they thought he was already like he just basically kind of just explodes Tokyo with fury you know yes i mean and, it's this as you say, it's the horror of the unknown, and yeah. he so represents the unknown, and it is such a powerful way to frame that character. Yeah, that it's just, and it's something where, like, personally, I just that's one of the things I like about Evangelion. It's the thing I liked about the early parts of Attack on Titan, and there's plenty of other stuff that like does this of just like this like sense of dis- distinct like despair and hopelessness in the face of this creature. Like is so evocative and effective to me. Like it's it's something that I really love, and it. it's like this movie does it unbelievably well. Yeah, it's so good. It's really good. So Godzilla is kind of in hibernation for a while after that because he yeah. like expends his energy, but there's still nothing they can do about him. And so that last act of the movie is where everything really kind of kicks into high gear. They have to figure this shit out, and it's just so involving. And we're not we didn't mention everything about that Tokyo sequence is how many things wind up coming together there. Yeah, because you have all these people trying to evacuate Tokyo, and you have the government people evacuating. And that's where you get a great shot where Yaguchi, who's sort of the main character, he's trying to like figure all this stuff out, and he's like the one government person who's really advocating for taking this very hands-on approach and sort of cutting the bureaucracy out of it. He's evacuating the building and he's about to go to an underground like tunnel. And then he turns around and he actually sees Godzilla in person for the first time, which I thought that was a great shot. And then also during that sequence, the prime minister and several of the board members are also trying to evacuate by a helicopter. And when they do that, there's just like this unbelievable sequence where it's like Godzilla just kills them all in one like swipe of his breath and they don't like cut to the inside of the helicopter or anything. You, you, especially if you're watching it with English subtitles, it's so easy to miss that that was a prime minister's helicopter because all you get is like one line of dialogue that's like, we lost contact with the prime minister, like right after the helicopter explodes and that's it. And then you find out later, like, yeah, no, like the prime minister and like half of the high up like officials in the Japanese government were just killed in an instant by Godzilla. Yes. No, I mean, on that's, an accident, basically. That's part of the horror of that sequence is that when it's done, there's so many pieces to pick up, and the Japanese government itself has been decimated. Yeah. So the, the, yeah, the extent of the horror they're doing here is so far above and beyond what a, a disaster monster movie would ever do. Yeah. It's insane. Um, and in that last sequence, we talked about it earlier, but those images of, again, using the wrapping him in Tokyo, I love that as a, a way to say it, because that's exactly what they do. Yeah. And, oh my God, it's, you are so on the edge of your seat with that, because I, I didn't quite, I was kind of thinking, I, this movie has enough of sort of an optimistic tone to it that they probably have to beat Godzilla, but I wasn't taking it as a guarantee, you know what I mean? Yeah, because it's like, like there's no way to beat Godzilla in this right. movie. Yeah, so that's just... A crazy sequence and you know there's a lot of um while the standout sequence is in tokyo at night and makes good use of sort of godzilla's radioactive body they do a lot of godzilla in broad daylight which is something for some reason i don't quite get this but like i I kind of a cgi is harder to do in the daylight i guess but 
a lot of American movies, even with all this budget, tend to do monsters and things like that at night and obscure it. And it's I don't always like that. Yeah, I like being able to see Godzilla like clearly. Like most yeah. Godzilla fight sequences take place during the day in the history of right. the franchise. So they very much follow up on that here. And yeah, that last sequence is uh, incredible. Yeah, and there, there's like a part at the beginning of that sequence that that I thought was really effective. Kind of hit me because I just wasn't really expecting it. But it's when Yagichi's like sort of talking to all these like different like JSFDF members and like emergency uh, people and all that kind of stuff. Like they're about to go enact the plan, and he just basically gives the speech about like you know we don't know what's going to happen. Like. I cannot guarantee that you will live like I can guarantee that you will matter and like you will make a difference which is like again when you're looking at the allegory like one of the sort of most heartbreaking parts of the the 2011 disaster in the Fukushima nuclear reactor incident was that there were like 50 people workers there that stayed behind to try to deal with the situation most of them died or had like horrible uh, conditions and, 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 and burns and stuff like that from the radioactivity and it's like that kind of level of heroism and self-sacrifice yes. and like relating that back to again something that happened in the real world not that long ago like that also hit me really hard absolutely in this sense as i said before of awakening of going from the boardroom to now they are out on the front lines the bureaucrats and the, the military and everyone together and it's just we have to do this and that sense of just unbridled heroism they earn it so well in this movie yeah and it's it's inspiring in a lot of ways the way they treat it and again, they're fighting, they're fighting a giant monster. Like, yeah, they're fighting so Godzilla. E it's so easy to lose perspective on that because the movie is so good. But it's like they took something so inherently silly, just like the first movie did, you know, yeah. 62 years ago, and made it so powerful. Um, so yeah, I love all that. Um, I want to talk about it. Uh, well, let's do it now. The ending of the movie, the yeah. last shot, yeah. is this sort of zoom in. Not even zoom in, it's kind of this series of cuts to Godzilla's tail. Because uh, once they freeze Godzilla's blood, he's almost like a giant statue or a fossil yeah. in the middle of Tokyo. And they're going to have to figure out what to do with him, I guess. Yeah. Uh, launch him into space, maybe. I don't know. But um, you're He will just come back to space, Godzilla. It's, uh, yes. it's not going to work. Anyway, but you see his tail. There's something disfigured about it. At first, I actually thought there were, like, construction workers on the tail. Maybe, like... Oh, and, yeah. And trying yeah. to, like, dismantle it. Because that would kind of make sense. I guess they're trying to study it or something. But as you get closer and closer, it's not that. I'm not sure what it is. And they don't let you see it long enough to figure it out exactly. And that's part of what is horrifying about it. I mean, it's basically, like, what it looked like to me was you had... Because it was kind of like a... It was, like, cutting in and then just sort of, like, kind of zooming up. And you see these, like, just, like, weird protrusions and stuff. You're like, what the fuck? And then it gets to the tip of the tail and you can see a little more clearly, like... There's this like human skeletal form popping right. out of the tail, like reaching up, and then it hangs on that for like half a second, and then cuts to black to the credits. It's one of the more disturbing images I've ever seen in a yeah, movie. Yeah, like it, it's something where it was something where I just kept on like wondering in that like final sequence where it seemed clear that's like yeah they're probably going to stop Godzilla, but how like how are they going to end this movie when they have set up Godzilla to be what he is? Like after they did that sequence at night in Tokyo with the the laser breath and all that shit, like. How do you... Oh, also with the laser breath. At the end sequence of the movie, Godzilla also starts shooting a laser out of the tip of his tail. So that yes. happens also, which is fucking amazing. He's just like, There's just lasers just shooting out of his body, just destroying everything at the end of this movie. But like, once you've set him up to be like that, how do you possibly stop him in any way that feels believable to the audience? And there was like, in that whole sort of, I guess, kind of denouement 
brief sequence at the end where you have Yaguchi and the American, uh, the Japanese American lady that we could talk about later because we haven't really addressed her role in the movie yet. Right. But they're having this t- conversation, and you see Godzilla in the background of this statue, which is a great shot where he kind of like becomes a new part of the Tokyo skyline in a way, which I loved. And then after the, like, but that whole sequence and conversation they have in the back of my mind, I was just like, this is like, something's going to happen. Cause it's like, you did not actually fix this. Like this is like such a hollow victory. Like you delayed this, like you froze him for a little bit, but like, you know, deep down that it's like, this is not fucking over yet. And I was just like waiting for like, what is going to happen? And like, and I love what they do is basically what like most sort of horror movies in particular do like with every horror movie ending is the like, oh, we defeated the thing and then but like, no, we actually didn't. And so I was like, I was kind of in the back of my mind expecting that ending. But the normal version of that ending would be like a slow zoom in on Godzilla and then like he opens his eye or something and then it cuts to black. It's like, that would have been fine. Or, you know, or like the fucking TriStar Godzilla movie had like the egg or whatever at the end. It's like, right. that's how you handle it normally. And it does, like in the broad sort of structure of it, it does do that ending of, oh, we solved it, but no, we actually didn't. But instead of just going for something easy like his like hand twitches or his eye opens up, it's just slow zoom on this tail that culminates in this like bizarre abstract image of this like skeletal human figure reaching out from the top of his tail that like and then it just cuts to black and you don't have any context for like is that like Godzilla evolving again? Is that just like a human that was grafted onto his tail from like the radioactivity of it? Like what is this but like it, it does give like i think there's lots of different sort of interpretive meanings you can give to it and one of the things i like is that it, it doesn't even necessarily need an interpretive ending or meaning it like is so striking as a visual image and the way it kind of for me relates to like it reminded me of like renaissance images of hell where yes. you just have like piles of humans like piling up like reaching for god like reaching for heaven but can't because they're so distant which like leads you to like sort of my interpretation of the of that ending is that sense of of like the kind of the religious part of the movie that we haven't talked about a lot where like Godzilla is a sort of god creature in this they very deliberately kind of keep him named Godzilla instead of calling him Gojira which is his original Japanese name he is named Godzilla in this movie and then they take the the Japanese sort of pronunciation from that instead and so they're very conscious of this creature being godlike of being unknowable, of being like this sort of like supreme being in some ways. And what I like about that with that ending is the sense of like that human sprouting from Godzilla's tail as being like Godzilla has, is operating on the function of God that he's making people. Like he is creating, like whether or not literally or not, but like in a sort of metaphorical sense, he has now created this new generation of people that have to live with that disaster as a part of their lives now in the way that like, you know, a natural, going with the allegorical stuff, a natural disaster, whenever that happens, people run towards God in some ways, or like lots of people do, and they try to read, like, religious meaning in it, and then some of that can be very gross of people saying, like, oh, Hurricane Katrina was caused from, like, the, the disgustingness of, like, like, gay people or something, like, you can have that, or it can just be people trying to find meaning in that event, but what I like about them showing that it's just, like, there's a sense of, Godzilla has made these people what they are. Like, this disaster has made these people what they are. And they, you have to live with that. And he has changed what we are. 
It's kind of interesting because his tail is obviously very prominent in this movie. It's bigger than it's ever been. Yeah, and it's like throughout the, the earlier parts of the movie, you can see it's like scarred and like knotted yes. and weird in the and way the rest of his body isn't. Particularly the end of the tail. Godzilla's yeah. tail is like a dinosaur tail and then it kind of goes to a tip and then ends usually, right? Yeah. But in this, it's like bulbous at the end. It's like this it's like, like open sore or something. Yes, like and that. I always thought it looked almost egg-like or something. And I was always, throughout the movie, wondering, are they going to do something with that? And so that was also, like, that idea of hatching, of evolving, of... It's very organic with what the movie is about, that we're not going to go to the eye. We're going to go all the way to the other end, and that tail, and it's starting to morph. This last yeah. piece that looked unevolved or whatever. So, no, it's it's a brilliant last image. I just want the Blu-ray to, like, freeze-frame that and, yeah. like, look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, again, like, in the theater we were at, there were, like, audible gasps. It was just like, yeah. oh, my God. Like, when it just cuts to black after that, you're like, fucking Jesus Christ. It's like, one of the most haunting images I've ever seen at the end of the movie. Like, it's yeah. crazy. Okay, so a couple of other pieces to talk about. Yeah. The music in this movie. Oh, yeah. Really the, good. It's really good. There's the original score, which is... Mo I, I, there's a couple moments where I didn't love when they bring in some, like, rock guitar stuff. Yeah, there's, there's one part where they do that. That feels a little off. A little off. But there's some other pieces of original music, like during the Tokyo Rampage, that is amazing. It's like this yeah. choral, very religious, kind of sacred kind of yeah. piece almost. I think that music might be from Neon Genesis Evangelion. It, it sounded it, it, really familiar I to believe me. it is. I was reading about that because they, uh, Anno decided to just basically, because the composer was the composer for Evangelion, yeah, yeah. and they remixed some pieces for this movie and just thought, well, this is already good music, so let's use it yeah, here. Yeah, fuck it. I mean, it's, it fits perfectly. Yeah. So they used that, and then there's significant portions of the original Akira Ifukube score for the 54 movie, but not like redone. It's just like the original mono tracks in yeah. the movie. Of specifically, it's the Godzilla theme from that movie, which is the Godzilla theme you all know, but it's the recording from that movie, and the Military March theme, which we played a little bit at the beginning of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, and a couple, a couple other little things, I think, yeah. too, right? But Yeah, but those are like the two really prominent right. sequences that used it. Yeah, and then, so where do they use the Military March first? Is it... Do they use it a couple times in this? I forget. Um, I'm trying to remember where. I think they use it at the end. I think they, that's what yeah. I was say. Yeah. I, I know they use it during like when they're starting the operation, the, the Yaguchi plan. Yeah. I was wondering, if, forgetting if they used it somewhere else. But I love it there because it is this, it's a military march. It's supposed to be like this yeah. prideful, hopeful thing. And it's a, it's a fun thing to kind of use in that moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love, I mean, what do you make of having the music there like that? It's great. Like it's one thing where I love... I, it's even though there are a, like several Toho movies that don't use the Godzilla theme in any way. I I love that theme. Like it, it's like it's so something I associate so much with Godzilla, and I love that this movie just like uses it. And and it's something again we maybe talk about this more later of the way this movie is sort of like taking things very specifically from the original Godzilla movie, and it's like whether it's the title font treatment, the music, or it's just like sense of being. Like a first Godzilla movie because it's the first appearance of Godzilla, which is generally not how like even Godzilla movies that don't really have direct connections with other ones. Generally, that's not how they do it. Generally, it's like Godzilla has existed for a little bit, and this is like his like third appearance or something like that. Where this movie's like, no, it's the first appearance of Godzilla, and even the title of the movie as Shin Gojira has. There's a lot of different fucking interpretations you can use because Shin is such a fucking loaded two syllables in Japanese, but like I like thinking of it as New Godzilla because it just feels like a new Godzilla movie that's trying to be what 1954 Godzilla was then, but now for a 2016 audience. But yeah, like like just having that connection to 
the original movie and having that connection to the franchise and the music. I love that they use the Godzilla roar sound effect and it is just the Godzilla roar sound effect instead of like the Gareth Edwards movie like had the roar in there but it was like they fiddled with it some or like that movie didn't use the Godzilla theme at all. Maybe they couldn't, I don't know. But like having that direct connection to this huge legacy is really important to me as a Godzilla fan and like having some of the, the iconic elements there um, makes a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's that. Um, we talked a little bit about the cinematography, but I just want to say again, like some of the shot choices in this movie are unbelievable. Yeah. And it's part of what keeps it so riveting throughout because most of the movie is dialogue, but it's just all so well shot. They do different sort of unusual things for a mainstream film, like direct address to the camera where the camera is just pointing right at the actor's face yeah. and they're not like looking off or anything. Um, some of those shots where they, you mentioned one where like the camera you know, is in a car and it's like POV looking up, but there's also where they'll just affix the camera to like a moving car through the carnage or something yeah. like that. Um, or there's some of those shots early on where they do it like news footage or something. It's just so well shot and assembled. Um, and then I think the acting is worth noting too, because yeah. there's not like really necessarily one standout performance or anything. Cause there's so many actors, but of the like hundreds of speaking parts in this movie, everyone is really good and very naturalistic and real and, kind of raw while I think a lot of the sort of main characters because there's probably like you know a dozen characters who become kind of central um, all of them wind up imparting a lot of personality in very small amounts of time which most disaster movies don't have a lot of personality at all but yeah. this movie is kind of bursting with it and I love that about it you know it was something that I thought was kind of almost funny or weird about this movie is that you know I think both you and I agree that like most disaster movies are fucking terrible, like particularly the Roland Emmerich yes. variety, which is he's sort of like makes the biggest, most popular ones, especially today. Like you obviously like back in the day you had like Twister and fucking like Dante's Inferno or whatever. The fucking all those are Dante's Peak, whatever the, all those movies with like volcanoes and twisters and asteroids and all the sort of the disaster movies that were more popular in the eighties and nineties. But typically those movies have like no character to them but they have like a bunch of characters and it's like but all of them are sort of like bland in nothing and you can't really identify anything particularly about them and it's one of the things about those movies that I've always hated and I've always thought that like oh that means that probably you should just like cut down like there's just too many characters and what I like about this movie is like it proves how wrong I was in that opinion of like they have way more characters in this movie than like the Roland Emmerich ones do and yet it works perfectly because on one hand they make the characters that are important are very identifiable because they'll have like specific pieces of clothing or they'll have a particular like way of speaking or something that makes them very clearly identifiable even if you haven't seen them in a while that helps a lot but then also it doesn't try to it, it only tries to do what it can with the characters and it's not trying to sort of get into every character's personal life and like introduce their families and like give them some sort of like drama with like oh no my wife's trapped in Tokyo like oh no like scientist number C like that's horrible we'll have to save or, your wife on top of all these other people or the stupid thing of like characters with just dumb gimmicks like the the, the worst one for me is the Transformers movies right. where like in the first Transformers movie which is a movie with way too many awful characters halfway through that movie for a reason no one will ever be able to explain they bring in Anthony Anderson right. who is a really funny guy when you let him be a human being and not a cartoon and they have him be like just off the walls going Going crazy and he's there for the rest of the movie for no reason and they don't ever try that in Shin Godzilla there's no like character who's just off the wall crazy bizarre just to kind of chew some scenery there's yeah. characters who are distinctive but they're not cartoons yeah but in all the characters feel like 
they because like all the characters are either bureaucrats or they are like scientists that are brought in to work for the government or they're soldiers like all the characters exist in some like direct official capacity to the disaster going on yes. to Godzilla and so the focus feels so specific that like it doesn't matter that you have all of these characters as long as the acting is good and as long as the the focus of the story is in the right place you can have as many characters in the world and it's like and it still works because the focus is where it needs to be yeah. and, and i thought like that was one of the most remarkable parts of the whole movie it's like the, these characters do some of them pop in the sort of right amount but none of them distract from godzilla and yet none of them feel like they are underserved because they all feel like people yes and so the only other character we need to talk about is uh Kayoko, I forget her name, but she's the... Kayoko, yeah. Kayoko. Um, it's not a name I've actually heard before, I feel like. Yeah. But uh, anyway, she is, in the digesis of the movie, she's supposed to be an American woman with Japanese heritage, right? Yeah, she's like a Japanese-American woman who like grew up in America. Right. And has like, learned Japanese as a second language, is like, working for the CIA or whatever as yeah. like, a liaison. Right. And the actress is fine. And it's good. It is just the one awkward thing as an English speaker yeah. is that they do have scenes where she is speaking English and she's supposed to be a native English speaker and she's clearly not. Yeah, I mean, and it's something where, like, if if you have ever fucking, like, watched, a, like, an anime or a Japanese movie or a movie from any culture or if you are someone who watches American movies and knows, say, Japanese and you're watching Daredevil or something and there's right. a character, an actor that's speaking a Japanese line that clearly has no idea what the fuck he's saying, it comes across as awkward because you have that knowledge for, like, the right. target demographic audience. Like, no, it's not an pe issue. People in Japan, it's just, yeah. it's funny because they put enough focus on it where, and I'm not even saying this necessarily as a complaint, it's just an interesting thing because one of her ambitions is to be president one yeah. day and, of course, you have to be very American to be president and I'm not, I wouldn't have any problem with a Japanese person being president yeah. but it's just funny because it's like, it's just a Japanese woman yeah. who's phonetically reading English sometimes in the movie. And so that's kind of takes you out of it if you are a native English speaker. For the people this movie was made for, i.e. Japan, not a problem. Yeah, but, like, yeah, it's something where, like, this is nowhere near the worst English acting in a Godzilla movie. Not, no. It's not even in the top fucking ten. Yeah. So, like, yeah, it's something where if you have a little bit of experience with it, I just ignored it immediately. No, I, it didn't bother yeah. me. It was just, it was kind of... That's the only part of the movie that in sort of its political talk came across as mildly naive because you just know kind of the way they're pitching it. But you just have to like put yourself back and like, right. but the, that's just how I'm seeing it. In the actual digesis, it makes sense. Yeah. It's okay. And it's, it really is, that's actually a good, having a Japanese American woman wanting to be president is again part of the film's sort of argument maybe about global cooperation also. Yeah. So it makes sense on that level. And like, they've like kind of like the differences between America and Japan in some yeah. ways. There, there's like, there's a scene where um, Kayako is talking to like an American general or something, and there was like something where it's like I kept on wanting it to be like to cut to like that guy because they were like the way they shot the scene, even though you could tell from the voice it wasn't like a famous actor or something. The way they shot the scene is they never showed the guy's face, and it kept on like showing his hand and stuff like that. I was like. How amazing would it be if they, like, just cut to it and it was fucking, like, Matt Damon or something <laughs> sitting there? Like, some really famous, like, it's Tom Cruise, That'd the really great. famous American actor that just, like, was taking a vacation to Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, that was just, like, a weird moment I had watching the movie. Like, oh, that would be so fucking amazing. Because I'm sure there's, there's some, like, reasonably famous American actor that would love to just take, like, that tiny you role. You know what it should, who it should have been? Who? Brian Cranston. Yes, that would have been great. That yes. would have been amazing. Yes. <laughs> anyway, 
Um, all right. So I think I've, I've, we've hit just about everything. Yeah. I have another question for you. Okay. So, um, I mean, is there anything else you kind of want to say about this as a Godzilla movie within the legacy of everything you talked about last week where you did um, mention every single Godzilla yeah. movie? Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff with, um, I think, I love the way that it sort of it keeps that sort of tight connection with the original film with not, with not trying to, like, emulate any of, like, the movies that really come between. It's, like, it's very much its distinct own vision, which is what I wanted, and it is, fuck, it's more of that than I even thought going into it. And so th- I love that about it. It is, it is a way better attempt at doing a solo Godzilla movie than Return of Godzilla, the 1984 one, which is fine, but it, like, feels a bit more sort of by the book back then, where, like, here... It's like everything about just the way it's made is so exemplary, but even the the way it's connected to the political climate of the time it's made in makes it like really pop and stand out in a way that the last time they tried to do this didn't work because this is the third Godzilla movie that only has Godzilla in it. Like this, they have not done this a lot, so it's well, pretty remarkable. In I that was way. thinking about this. How weird is it that so in the last two years we've had two Godzilla movies, the American and the Japanese one. Yeah. The American one wound up being a Godzilla versus movie where yeah. Godzilla's the hero. And the Japanese one wound up being the solo Godzilla movie. That yeah. just feels like reverse to me in some weird way. Where you would expect yeah. America to try to do the back to basics kind of thing. And Gareth Edwards instead went way more in the versus direction. Yeah, and, it fe- well it felt like like now that I have the perspective on it, it feels like the Gareth Edwards movie is like a Godzilla movie. It's an American Godzilla movie in that it feels like it is playing off of the American perspective on Godzilla which as I talked about on last week's podcast and mentioned earlier on this one, like those, like the 90s and 2000 movies, except for Godzilla 2000, those Godzilla movies did not come over here in any reasonable way. Like Godzilla versus Biollante was like played on cable and stuff over here. And Godzilla 2000 got like a small theatrical release and that was not super successful. And so the public consciousness of Godzilla in America is very much rooted in the 60s and 70s films, which are all, are mostly goofy, are all versus movies, and are all, like, sort of, they tend to have Godzilla as that more heroic figure, which is the direction the Gareth Edwards movie ultimately goes in. They sort of, like, play it coy a bit early on, but by the end of that movie, it's like, yeah, like, Godzilla saved New York City, or San Francisco, or wherever the fuck it's set. And so that's where that movie goes with it, and I think, like, it, it works well in that way, whereas for a new Japanese Godzilla movie, I think there's no doubt that, like, it needed to go back to basics. It needed to establish what Godzilla is now. Like, whether, like, I do not, there's, they're not going to make a fucking direct sequel to this movie. I don't know how you possibly could. It would be crazy. But the sense of just, like, we need to bring Godzilla back. We need a new perspective on Godzilla, a new sense of Godzilla in 2016 as opposed to 2004 or 2000 or, you know, like... The, the history of the films. And so it makes sense to me why you'd come back to it and you'd want to say like, okay, we've, we've done this twice before of having a like only Godzilla movie that sort of like set the stage for what was to follow. Like, let's do that again. And hopefully like if they keep on making more Godzilla movies, which this made so much money in Japan, I assume they must. Hopefully they keep that sense of like, let's find an interesting director that has an interesting version of Godzilla to do. And let's just let him do that because... That's what I want most from Godzilla movies. Well, that was going to be my next question, is what do you want next? And, and I think we were talking about this off the air last week. It would be so cool if for this next phase of Godzilla, they almost did it anthology style. Yeah. Just each one is different. It's got a unique vision. They're, they are producing right now an animated Godzilla film in Japan, which yeah. will be his first 
Weirdly, for the 62-year history of the character, the first anime version of Godzilla, yeah. that's kind of a cool well, idea. We had the Hanna-Barbera cartoon version with Godzuki uh, in the fucking 80s or whenever that fuck that came, cartoon came out. Doesn't count. <laughs> no, it definitely doesn't count. For... There's also Godzilla the Animated Series following oh, the 98 right. movie. Yeah, that doesn't count either. No. For like a lot of reasons. Yeah, but anyway, this is, so this will, that'll be the next one. And then I'm wondering like for the next live action one after that... Where do you go from here? But I just hope they embrace kind of just be experimental and big and bold with it because, boy, audiences responded to this one. Yeah, man. But, like, there's also part of me that's like, what the fuck do you do with the next Godzilla movie? Because, like, you can't do, you can't do this again, obviously. Like, I, no. I would want them to go to a versus movie because you can't do... I mean, one of the reasons why there's only been two other Godzilla movies that have been Godzilla Solo is because... There's only one movie to do with Godzilla Solo. That's him stomping on Tokyo. Like, that's... You can't... And you can only do that when enough of the environment has changed and, like, the landscape has changed that, like, okay, we have new material to tackle with this basic idea. So, obviously, like, they need to... You know, whether they want to do new monsters or bring some classics back, like, whatever direction they want to go with it, I think you need to do a versus movie next. Godzilla Final Wars 2. Fucking sure. I would go to that. I would... It's where he, like, fights all the fucking 90s and 2000-era monsters that, like, were weirdly just not in that Godzilla <laughs> Final Wars for whatever reason. All right. Well, so glad we got to see this movie and talk about it. Very good. You should yeah. see it. Yeah, definitely. Like, that, this is, like I said earlier, I've, I, this is a movie I'm absolutely going to get on Blu-ray. So will continue my trend of only buying giant monster movies on Blu-ray. But Sounds it. good. Yeah. All right. Uh, not sure what we're talking about next week. Yeah, I feel like just... I, not done with Persona 5 yet, so there's only, there's only a limited amount of stuff I can really do in preparation for a podcast. That's okay. We will figure it out. I have some ideas we'll talk about off the air. But uh, yeah, it's a busy year to go. We got over the Godzilla hump, so it's awesome. We've done a lot of fun topics this year, and I'm excited to, to see how we finish it out in the next few months. Yeah. I've, you know, now I just get to like start my clock in anticipation of, okay, well, when is the next Godzilla movie coming out? Because now they're making more of them. And when will, when is the next period of my life where I will stop being me for like a month until I can be me again, until I can be whole? 